Hey guys, this is Robert Breedlove from the What Is Money Show. And as you've learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to facilitate financial security for all. They accomplish this by bringing a high level of professionalization and sophistication to the Bitcoin marketplace. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. By using Nidig, you will gain access to an end-to-end institutional-grade platform, providing Bitcoin OTC transactions, Bitcoin collateralized borrowing, secure custody, asset management, derivatives, financing, market research, and more. And all of these services meet the highest regulatory, governance, and audit standards. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and is leading the way for ongoing institutional adoption in this nascent asset class. So please be sure to check out Nidig as a single source for all your Bitcoin needs. Zuby, we've been talking about this for a long time and I'm really glad to finally have you on the show. So welcome to the What Is Money show. I appreciate it, man. Good to talk to you, bro. Yeah, it's great to connect. Um, I've, you know, honestly really been enjoying just preparing for this interview, just going through some of your Twitter feed. And um, yeah, you got a lot of interesting things to say. And I think you really put it out there in an honest way. So I appreciate that. Um, I think the, the general idea today is we wanted to talk a bit about your story. Um, I guess we could just maybe start from the beginning. A lot of my audience may not know um, your story up to this point. And, you know, given the namesake of the show, the What Is Money show, um, wanted to kind of explore your relationship with money over time and how that's changed, you know, going from childhood into adulthood um, and into your career, which seems like you're you're near the... uh, near the peak of today you're really really rocking it out there so um the peak the peak thus far the peak yeah the peak the peak so far right um so i'll just throw it to you where to start but i would i would really personally like to hear it kind of from the beginning um to get to get a background of where you're coming from yeah sure thing okay so i'll start literally from the beginning so i was born in the uk Both of my parents are originally from Nigeria. I'm the youngest of five siblings. When I was one year old, my dad, who's a medical doctor, got an opportunity to move to Saudi Arabia and work there. So he left and my mom and five kids came and joined him a couple of weeks later. Of course, I don't remember this because I was just a baby at the time. And we ended up living in Saudi Arabia for about 20 years in total. Mm. So all of my earliest memories are actually in Saudi Arabia. I went to preschool there. I was in elementary school from kindergarten up until the fifth grade. So I was actually at an American slash international school. So anyone who's wondering why I'm British, but when I talk and when I rap, I sound more American. It's literally because I went to an American school for a large uh, time in my life. When I was 11 years old, I went to boarding school in the UK. So from a pretty young age, I was traveling independently back and forth between the UK and Saudi Arabia multiple times a year, depending on whether it was school time or outside of it. 
And heavy exposure to all of these different cultures has really influenced the way I see things, the way I look at the world, and the way I even look at various issues. I think the reason why a lot of people find my commentary on various things interesting is because I'm not coming from just one perspective, right? I've grown up with heavy American influence, British influence, Nigerian influence, Arab and Saudi influence. So I don't just see things in the way that someone who's just lived in London all of their life would, or maybe someone who's just lived in LA all of their life or Mm. wherever else. I can kind of see things from these different angles. And so when I give my perspective or express my views on certain things, it, it comes from a slightly different angle from what most people particularly say in the UK or USA might be totally used to. Um, So I did really well in school. I got top grades in everything. I got accepted to Oxford University. I went there and I studied computer science. So I was there for three years. I graduated when I was 20. And I actually also started rapping when I was at university. So I released my first album when I was in my second year of university when I was 19. And I ended up selling 3,000 copies of that totally independently. I started out with just 50 copies um, and I sold those, took that money, reinvested it, made a couple hundred, sold those, reinvested it, made a thousand. And off of that, I started to build my name more. Once I'd exhausted the audience of people who know me, family, et cetera, and friends, then I started just going out into the street, talking to strangers, playing people my music, doing live performances, And that was really how I started off my music career. After university, I took a year out and I did my music full-time for one year. I released a second album called The Unknown Celebrity. And then after that, I moved to London and I worked in the corporate world for three years. Hmm. Um, During that time, I was juggling both careers, doing being a management consultant and also being a musician as well. And then it reached a stage where both careers were starting to interfere with each other more than I really wanted them to. And deep down in my heart of hearts, I knew what I wanted to be doing, and that was to be a full-time musician. So November 2011, I made a big call and I left my corporate job, went and pursued an independent music career. And it's coming up to 10 years now of being full-time self-employed with my music. And now I've added additional strings to the bow, released my first book in 2019, started my podcast also in 2019 and have just become, you know, known for a whole bunch of different things. So that is a summary of the Zuby story so far. Wow. That is super cool. I had no idea you went to school for computer science. Um, Really interesting. And then the very politically multifaceted background. So you've just seen the world from a lot of angles growing up. And I guess that kind of gives you an enriched perspective. And now that you're coming up on, 10 years, I guess that means you're almost an overnight success, right? Isn't that what they say? About 10 years to be an overnight success. Yeah, getting there, man. I mean, in 2019, that's when things really, really started to grow for me in an exponential way. I mean, to give you an idea, I mean, regarding numbers. So, you know, across the social media platforms, I think I've got about 800 and something thousand followers in total now. But if you look at something like Twitter, which is my biggest platform, and a lot of people know me for my viral tweets, at the beginning of 2019, keep in mind, I've been on Twitter since uh, 2009, and I've used it consistently all throughout. Mm. At the beginning of 2019, I had about 15,000 followers. Today, I think I have 426,000. Wow. So from 
early 2019 to now 2021, I have grown my audience exponentially. And the number of people who know me and recognize me, not just here in the UK, but around the world has just grown crazily. I mean, beginning of 2019, my biggest audience was here in the UK. I wasn't really known at all in the USA or that many other places, but things just blew up then. I had a specific tweet, my my deadlift tweet, which went insane. And then lots of people <laughs> discovered me off of the back of that. I was invited to go on Joe Rogan. I mean, 2019 was was wild. You know, I was there. Yeah. The next thing I know, I'm in the USA chatting with Joe Rogan and Ben Shapiro and going on Fox News and speaking to Tucker Carlson, getting invited to the Pentagon, the White House, all of this crazy stuff um, and being recognized in all these cities that I'd never been to before. And I'm just like, man, I'm an I'm a independent rapper from the South of England. Uh, <laughs> why am I in the White House, you know? That's um, so cool. So yeah, it's, uh, it's been a wild ride and people like what I have to offer. So beyond that sort of initial catalyst moment, yeah. people have stuck along for the ride and have continued to support me in what I'm doing. That's so cool. So that pattern is pretty true then. You're basically laying a lot of groundwork for the first seven, eight years, and then all of a sudden it just explodes. Yeah. I mean, I'd say, I mean, I released my first album in 2006, man. So we're not even talking about a decade, right? I released my first album 15 years ago, which sounds insane to me because it really doesn't feel like it's been that long. Um, And as far as I'm concerned, I've still got a very, very long way to go in terms of what my potential is and what I'm trying to do in this world. But it's good to know that I'm on that trajectory and there's a lot of people who, who are behind me who want to see me succeed and who are really supportive of the different things that I do. And that's a massive blessing to me. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you attribute the growth to? I mean, I guess you mentioned the the deadlift tweet <laughs> on Twitter, which I think maybe you could just tell the story about that. I think it's super funny and it's just hilarious. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, sure. So in February, 2019, I posted a nine second video of me doing a 230 kilo deadlift, which is- That's a massive deadlift. 505? 500 something pounds, yeah. Yeah. Significantly below my PB. Um, I've pulled over 600 before, but it was more than the British female record for sure. And so I just commented saying something like, I keep hearing about how biological men have no strength advantage over women in 2019. Mm. So watch me destroy the British women's deadlift record without trying. (laughs) P.S. I identified as a woman whilst lifting the weight. Don't be a bigot. So I just put that out there uh, thinking, okay, you know, it's kind of funny. I didn't think it was going to become anything significant. And then within about 10 minutes, the video had 10,000 views and a couple hundred retweets. Within an hour, I think it had grown to over 50,000 views and it was getting retweeted by really big accounts as well. You know, Piers Morgan, uh, this person, that person, and Coulter. Uh, ben Shapiro. I'm just like, oh gosh, what is going on here? Wow. By that night, the video is up to 300,000 views. I wake up in the morning, it's up to half a million. And wow. this thing just goes for, for weeks, for weeks. I was gaining like a hundred followers an hour for several weeks on end. Oh my! And gosh. I kind of kept stoking the fire because I was like, oh wow, something is going on here. So I kind of use that to keep introducing people to more and more of what I'm doing. And I just managed to snowball it. Then media companies started contacting me, the BBC, Sky News, Fox News, different newspapers, et cetera. And they wanted to have this conversation with me because at that time, there was a big conversation going on around transgender athletes competing in sports because 
the Olympics was supposed to happen in 2020. Mm -hmm. So in 2019, they were talking about what the rules around that would be. Funnily enough, as we record this, this conversation is happening again now because there's this uh, weightlifter from New Zealand uh, who's biologically male, who's going to be competing in the New Zealand team, if you've seen that. Really? So, in yeah. Olympic weightlifting? Yeah. And I, so this is going to be, yeah, in Olympic weightlifting, New Zealand. I haven't seen that. Yeah. Somebody called Laurel Hubbard. So this conversation is actually exploding again right now, two years wow. later. So because of the timing of it, and it, it's interesting because it went viral in all these different spheres. It went viral in the, the online fitness world, the online political world, <laughs> the sort of like uh, trans activism world, the feminist world, like just all of these different spheres. Like it just hit at yeah. the right time and it, it just caused all of these reactions and responses. Yeah. Right. And so, and also because it wasn't, um, you know, there's a lot of people who have talked about this issue, but it was the, I think it was the fact that it was, it was, it was funny, right? There was That's a satirical, yeah. It, it, yeah, it wasn't an attack on anybody. Yeah. It was just satirical, <laughs> but it's just making a point and an important point, but in a funny way. So yes. it's not something that someone could really jump on and be, yeah, sure. Some people did get angry, but even they didn't really know what they were angry about. Yeah. Kind of wanted to be, they were like, this is offensive somehow, but I don't really, <laughs> I don't really know how or why. Um, and so it just, it just went far. It went really, really far. And then I was able to parlay that into um, a lot of things. Cause, cause like you said, I'd laid all that groundwork in the past. So yeah. Once people did discover me, they quickly realized, oh, okay, this isn't just uh this guy's got more than the, just this one tweet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's an interesting thinker. He's funny. Oh, cool. He does. He's into sports. He's into music. He's got a podcast. He's got some interesting political views, yeah. whatever. So it was kind of like a gateway for people to discover me. That's, I mean, I'm sure you had no intention for it to become what it did, but um, <laughs> it's almost a work of genius because it is funny. <laughs> it's not actually offensive in any way. And you're, I mean, you're just pointing to something that's so obvious about yeah. this silly, I don't know what you call this, that's going on in the world today, this cultural illusion mm. that we're increasingly falling prey to. Um, maybe you could give, because I think this is really important, that you were able to strategically adapt in the moment and actually stoke the flames of the tweet going viral. Mm. I know other people have encountered this where they just tweet something out and then it, you know, erupts um, unbeknownst to them or unexpected to them. Could you maybe just unpack that a little bit, like how you actually did stoke the flames and work that to your advantage for other people that, that might experience that at some point? Yeah, sure. So I think there's two parts of it. The first part is the groundwork that has been being laid out for all of these years, mm. right? So by the time people saw that, I already had tens of thousands of followers and uh, seven music releases and a podcast and all of this other stuff. So I'd already, so when people came and were like, wait, who's this Zuby guy? They could go on Spotify or iTunes or YouTube or podcasts or whatever. And they, oh, okay. He, he's not just a one hit wonder with this tweet. He's got, he's got other stuff. So mm -hmm. a lot of the groundwork was prior to, that tweet. Obviously, that's not why I was doing all of that, but it meant that when people discovered me, there was a bit of a rabbit hole to go down and be like, oh, okay, cool. I, mm -hmm. I mean, if you go on some of my YouTube videos, you'll see some of the comments on my music videos, especially in 2019, are came for the deadlift, stayed for the music. 
right? <laughs> so, uh, so that was a part of it. But then at the moment where it was actually going viral, it was very much a matter of engagement, right? Engagement and seizing opportunities. So when Fox News are like, hey, we want to talk to you about this, I'm like, yeah, cool. You know, I'd rather talk about my music, but if this is what you want to talk about, right. I'm not going to turn down the opportunity to talk to you on Fox News, right? If you want to talk to me on Sky News, BBC, what I, just, I was just saying yeah. yes to everything. Yeah, yeah. Be, we want you on this podcast. Or that. Cool. Count me in. Let's do it. Let's do it. And even just engaging in the comments and keeping the joke going. So I also <laughs> then posted a video of me breaking the British women's bench press record. Right. So <laughs> if you go in that thread, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, they're, they're both pretty easy. So, and I did it. I did it for multiple reps as well. So I then posted that one, and so I kind of kept. I kept the feed going. What was and the record? I think I also. Do you remember? Uh, the deadlift in my weight class, I think, was two hundred fifteen kilos. Yeah. And the bench press, something like one hundred and ten. 110. Oh, piece of cake. Yeah. 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 No need. need, need I mean, for a, but that's the point, right? For a guy, right? For, yeah, yeah, yeah. For, a, for a man who works yes. out and is strong, like I'm not, you know, I, I have got a world-class deadlift actually, yeah. but like generally, you know, I'm not the strongest guy in any given gyms, but again, that's the point. It's and what's like, your okay, weight I'll, class or body weight? Um, right now, I think it's about 88, but 88 normally more like 84, 85. Like if I were to compete, it would be 84. Yeah. Yeah, man, you. Um, it's funny. I I did Olympic lifting growing up. Okay. My best deadlift ever was 275 kilos, but I weighed. I weighed a lot though. I weighed mm -hmm. 115 or 20 kilos, maybe. Okay. So I was a really big guy. I take it you're pretty tall. I'm tall. I'm almost yeah. six four. And then, but now <laughs> I'm like I don't know what I could deadlift now. Like maybe 180 kilos. Like I'm yeah. I'm older. Um. But, but I wish I had had it, got it on video. I never knew it was a women's world yeah. record. So. <laughs> you could have had that moment. Yeah. No, my, I mean, my dead, yeah, my deadlift, my best deadlift was 275 at 83. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. That's my, that's my best deadlift. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I mean, like I have got a very good deadlift. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, the, the general point being made was uh, it's it's one of those things you don't really have to explain it. It's just now you're in the world record books, right? Because you identified <laughs> as a woman when you did it. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's really funny because I actually already had that video just on my phone from one of my training sessions. So one misconception is I think people think that I actually specifically uh, shot that video to make that point or that yeah. I did it in a competition or something. It was like, no, I didn't. That was just a clip from one of my training sessions that was already on my phone. Cause the way, the reason it actually came about, I'll tell a bit more of the story is I, uh, I, I was looking through Twitter and online just one on that morning. And I actually saw in the same day, I saw three stories of uh, so-called transgender athletes competing in female sports and winning, right? Two in mm -hmm. athletics and one in some other sport. And my brain just went, I wonder what the, I'm good at deadlifting. I wonder what the British women's deadlift record is. Mm -hmm. So I literally just Googled it and I was like, oh, 215 kilos. I'm like, man, I can smoke that. And then I had a video of me doing 230 just on my phone. <laughs> so I was just like, so I was just like, okay, I'm just going to post this. Uh, Cause the idea made, the way I actually do a lot of my tweets is if something makes me laugh or I think it's interesting, yeah, then I just share it with the world. Right. I just share. Right. And it made Simple. me laugh. So I yeah. thought, okay, if I think it's funny, 
a few other, a, yeah. a couple hundred other people will think it's funny. I didn't think it would be millions, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I thought, okay, let me just share that. Let me share that silly thought. And um, yeah, within minutes, like I said, I saw it was doing something crazy. Wow. I'd never experienced at that point. That's funny. So it wasn't premeditated at all, really. You just had a thought and had the video ready to go. Put it out there. Wow. Yeah. So just put cool. it out there, man. Well, well, maybe this is a good time to talk a, a little bit more about fitness, actually, because I know that's a big component of your life. Um, you've got an ebook out about fitness. Um, maybe you could just weave that into the story. How'd you get into fitness? What is, um, you know, I guess maybe you played some sport or something early on. If you did, mm. what was that? And then what's your current fitness regimen like? Yeah, sure thing, man. So I've played, I played sport sort of throughout my life, really. Um, I wasn't a super athletic kid at all. In fact, I was a little bit of a fat kid. Um, and so actually, yeah, <laughs> but at the same time I was, I was decent at sports though. With that said, I wasn't particularly athletic, but I was decent at sports. I was on the swimming team. Um, I was on various, uh, well, we call it football. You guys call it soccer teams. Yeah. Um, I played baseball when I was in Saudi Arabia as well. Okay. And then when I came to the UK, I was still playing uh, football and then really there's no baseball in the UK. So I picked up rugby and mm. rugby actually became my main sport. So I started playing rugby when I was 11 and that quickly became my primary sport and yeah. with maybe football or soccer as my, as my secondary one. And I've played various other sports, at least tried them throughout the time, athletics, et cetera. So I actually started working out because of I wanted to get in, I wanted to just get bigger and stronger for rugby. Yeah, I used something crazy when I was 15, I weighed more than I do now. Wow, <laughs> yeah, when I was 15, I weighed more than I do now. Were um, you, um, as tall? Like, uh, did you grow fast height wise? I was, yeah, I mean, I was just maybe like an inch or two shorter than I am now, yeah, but um. Yeah, I just uh, I was just eating too much and lifting too much, but um, yeah, I wanted to. Like I said, I was a bit of a chubby kid. I wanted to. I was playing rugby, so that was my main motivator to get into the gym and start training. Like most people, I didn't really know what I was doing. Yeah. I was just, you know, going around and using machines and lifting some weights. Probably using a lot of bad form on various things, but you know, by the time I was 16, 17, I was pretty strong. Yeah. Um, you know, I was pretty strong, and then. It's just something that I I kept going. It just became a lifestyle habit. I played uni I sorry I played rugby all the way through school. Um, it made it you know I was in the top team in my school, and then I also played in university as well for my college in Oxford. Yeah. And then I stopped playing rugby when I left university. But I've always just kept going with my gym training, which is really a sort of hybrid between bodybuilding and powerlifting. Yeah. Um, I sort of mix both styles of training because I like being strong, but I don't want to lift mega, mega heavy, you know, all the time. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I like to do more than just three or four different exercises. So I've just combined them and I've read, you know, read a lot of books. There's been a lot of trial and error, been on a lot of different diet cycles, trying all these different things. Uh, when I was a teenager, we used to, I don't know, we like tried too many you know, we used to read Flex magazine and Muscle and Fitness and whatever. And at this age, we didn't know that all these guys were on like mad steroids and stuff. Right? Yeah. We just thought, <laughs> we, we just thought, oh, I just need that protein powder. Or I just right. need that liquid creatine or that. Or so, yeah, we kind of bought into the supplement hype a lot and wasted a lot of money. Um, I think everybody did, right? Out. Those, the, yeah, the yeah. Pictures <laughs> in the magazines are so convincing. 
I mean, the guys are just crazy in shape and they're just like, oh, yeah, drink the creatine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to take this, uh, you know. Yeah. yeah so I, I was really bought into this sort of bodybuilding bro stuff. And then in my 20s, I discovered intermittent fasting and mm. the fact that, oh, I didn't, I'm not going to go catabolic if I don't eat every two hours. Um, and I tried the whole keto thing, but it didn't work well for me personally at all. Just a lot of trial and error, but yeah. making a lot of progress as I went along. So the reason I released my book in 2019, Strong Advice, Zuby's Guide to Fitness for Everybody, was for a couple of reasons. Firstly, a lot of people ask me for fitness advice, and I don't really have the time nor inclination to give people individual, individual advice all the time. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to write something that could help those people. And also something that I wish I had when I started rather than buying all these muscle magazines or following all these pro bodybuilder splits and whatever, which are totally inappropriate for a natural 16 year old. Yeah. Um, I thought, okay, let me just write something that covers the basics of mindset and motivation, nutrition and training so that whatever your goal is, whether you're trying to build muscle, burn fat, get stronger, gain weight, lose weight. Here's how you do it. It's not ultra complicated. It's concise. I didn't fill it up with jargon. It's also a very, um, it's a relatively short book as well. You know, it's yeah. a book you can get through in a couple hours and I want people to be able to go back to it, read it multiple times and reference it rather than creating some huge manuscript that no yeah. one's really going to read. Yeah. Something functional, which is great. Yeah. Well, that's, that's interesting. I, rugby, man, that's a heck of a sport. Um, I, I went to college we had a rugby team. I went to college at Tennessee and those are some of the best athletes at school. I mean, those guys are just tough. They've got the mental tenacity. They're in the gym all the time and that's sport. I mean, my goodness, just playing rugby, something that really toughens you up. I mean, it's yeah. just a rough <laughs> sport. I've never seen it. Um, what so you mentioned that keto did not work for you do you have just a general diet that you follow or you well just maybe speak to that briefly as, as what you like to eat yeah yeah, yeah so true. when i say keto didn't work for me i just meant i i i like my carbs and yeah. cutting them out completely for me it made me very sluggish it made me just feel flat reduced a lot of my lifts in the gym lost a lot of strength lost a lot of muscle etc yeah. um i just yeah. And I also have to deprive myself of a lot of foods, which I really enjoy. These days, I just do flexible dieting, man. Um, I've managed to stay within the same weight range, maybe the same. I managed to stay within the same seven kilo weight range for probably the last 12 years or so. Mm, I've always been, I think the lowest I've gotten is about 82. And the yeah. highest I've gotten is 89, maybe 90. So yeah. for the, so most of my adult years, I've stayed, managed to stay within that range. So I just practice flexible dieting. I'm very much focused on, you know, calories in calories out, man, uh, mm -hmm. getting enough protein. And I find for me personally, how I split up my carbs and my fats in terms of macros doesn't really matter much for me in terms of my body composition. I, I generally follow a sort of 80, 20 rule in terms of my calories. So I try to make sure 80% of my calories come from, you know, wholesome, good, nutritious, what people would consider healthy food. Mm -hmm. And then the other 20%, 10-20%, like I don't really mind. I don't I don't have cheat days, but mm. you know, I'll eat a little bit of cheat food every day. I'll have some chocolate, I'll have some ice cream, I'll have some cookies, whatever. I don't nice. I don't beat myself up over yeah. it. Even if I'm dieting. If I'm dieting, I'll need to dial down my general calories a little bit. 
but I have a relatively high caloric requirement. So even if I'm dieting, I mean, last time I cut, I think I was cutting on about 2,900, 3,000 mm. calories a day, which is enough for some people to gain weight on. Yeah. So I can still manage to, especially if you're doing intermittent fasting and you're eating all that within a yeah. seven or eight hour window. So then, um, you're skipping breakfast then for the intermittent fasting? How do you? Do yeah, I, tra I train. I train on empty. Yeah. I've done that since I was. I've done that for over ten years. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was doing intermittent fasting before it was very popular. Actually, yeah. I discovered it. Um, shout out to Martin Burkan and his Lean Gains website. I discovered that like, I want to say maybe when I was twenty-two or twenty-three, and it sounded a little bit crazy to me at first because I was kind of into the bro thing of oh, you know, you need to keep eating yeah, small meals throughout the day. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, let me try this thing. And it worked extraordinarily well for me. It mm -hmm. made my cut much more manageable and I wasn't feeling hungry and deprived from eating all these little bird meals all yeah. throughout the day. I was able to eat big meals. So I always stuck with that. Um, I'm not super rigid with it unless I need to be. Uh, if there's a time coming up where it's like, okay, for these next eight weeks, I want to really tighten up and, yeah. uh, you know, I haven't done this for a while, largely because the gyms were closed for much of last year and even yeah. some of this year, et cetera. So I've done my best to try to maintain throughout certain injuries, et cetera. But right now I'm not, I'm not at my physical peak right now. Like I'm always in good shape. Yeah. I, I never let my, I never let myself go. Yeah. Um, but I'm not right now. I'm not in the shape I would have been say in, I don't know, mid 2018 where yeah. I just had, you know, multiple years of just being able to focus on the gym I mean, the gyms here got shut for, man, uh, was it like four months straight or something yeah. like that? Um, and so, yeah, stuff like that makes a difference. It's not going to make you lose yeah. huge amounts of strength. But if you're a strong guy and you lose even 10%, that's a pretty significant amount. It's been rough for me as well, just the gym situation that just... Um, been really hard to work out you know you can kind of do the basics but it was hard to find a fully equipped gym that was open yes i was i was actually you know kind of going through the back door operation in california you had to pay a guy <laughs> that was actually the gym was closed we had to sneak in it was all such a such an issue so i think a lot of people have come off their fitness peak over the past 18 months exactly um but i i also and this is something i mentioned in my book as well though is you're, I think there's some, something important for people to understand as well, especially if you're someone like myself, or I think yourself, who's very ambitious and strives towards self-improvement mm -hmm. is that, you know, you're not always going to be by definition, you can't always be at your peak, right? <laughs> right? right. You can't, right. you can't be right. peaking all the time. Right. So I think it's important for people not to I think guys like us, we can be too hard on ourselves sometimes. Yeah, I can, I can sure. absolutely be too for hard sure. on myself in, in every aspect, for sure. right? Because I'm always trying to get better. So I start, you know, kind of punishing myself a little yeah. bit when I feel, even if I waste half a day, I'm kind of like, oh man, Zuby, like, what are you doing? You know? Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, we, we need to remember, okay, that's, that's all right. And to keep going. And it's, it's better to, you know, it's better to do a suboptimal workout Mm -hmm. than not to work out at all. It's better yes. to eat a suboptimal meal than yeah. to just go super crazy and be like, oh, well, I can't eat perfectly, so I'm going to totally binge. It's like, right. no, like, you know, keep it, keep it in check. Yeah. I do the same. It's especially important when you're traveling, especially if you're traveling or something like that, because you're not going to be able to, you're going to miss workouts. Mm -hmm. You're not going to get every perfect meal in. Sometimes you're almost going to be forced to eat something, which is, you know, I don't know, like a 
very sub suboptimal, <laughs> yeah. way suboptimal. Sub- yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was in the States for 11 weeks in 2019 and I was traveling everywhere and doing all this and doing that, you know, and I got to the gym sometimes, but it was hard, but I was like, you know what? Let me not use this as an excuse to just totally let myself go. Yeah. But also let me not psychologically beat myself up. Like I've been on track for over 15 years with my training. <laughs> yeah. So let, let me not, let me not beat the hell out of myself. Cause absolutely. Uh, yeah. I think there's a number of important things there. One, um, I wish early on in the fitness career, it was very popular, like you said, to do the eat every two hours thing, which is not only a pain in the ass because it's just logistically, <laughs> you're trying to like eat and put food in containers and constantly, it's just really difficult to maintain, but it's also way less effective mm-hmm. than really the, if you just skip breakfast and do that feeding window of lunch, dinner, I think that gets most people the best results. So if there's something for the audience to take away from that, it's like, just do that. It's very simple. You eat two meals a day. And if you train on empty, like you said, I think that's great. Mm-hmm. I try to, I try to wake up in the morning, do my, I have a like morning routine and whatnot that I do on a, just a typical day. And then once I get hungry, that's when I go to the gym. Cause mm-hmm. once you start working out, the blood actually flows into your muscles and you're not hungry anymore. Mm-hmm. So it, it just gives you a better, I think, state of, hormonal balance and mind even for training. And then two, the, you, you alluded to the self-talk, like, I think this is typical of what you might call type a personalities that were super hard on ourselves. Like we're the self-talk can be a little negative at times. So you really have to watch that because if you're not being friendly to yourself, this is something I've I've really, it's been a hard lesson for me to learn as I've gotten older, but if you're not talking to yourself, your self-talk as you would talk to a friend, then it's not really healthy. You know, if you, Hey, you didn't do it and you're getting after yourself. It just, I don't think it's as effective as being more motivational, um, mm. which is something I'm sure, sure your book goes into on the motivational yeah. front. Yeah. yeah, man. I agree. I also think, um, you know, you also need to be able to, Celebrate your little successes, man. Mm. Uh, again, this is something that I'm not great at, right? I'm like hyper conscientious. I'm not good at just chilling or relaxing mm. or, you know, I, I do one thing and then I was like, oh, I want to do the next thing. I want to do the next thing. But again, you know, you need to sometimes pat yourself on the back and be like, you know what? Like, good job, man. Like you're, you're doing, you're doing well. Yeah. Like you're doing, yeah. you're doing all right. Like you accomplished some stuff. You've done some cool things, you know, well done. It doesn't mean stop and that's it. But, you know, good, like recognize that and be like, yeah, keep going. Um, I'm not in my usual place right now, but in my in my um, previous apartment, I mean, I had pictures of like people always laugh if they visit because they're like, man, you got a lot of pictures of yourself up here. But right. I had my (laughs) but I had my album covers, you know, like my eight my eight albums. Because I forget as a musician, I'm like, yo, I've put out I mean, I've I've, I've put out nine projects now. I'm like, cool. I've put out nine projects like that's that's not nothing, right? Especially yeah, as an yeah. independent artist, like I'm cool. I've done stuff. And yeah. as, a, as a musician, you always forget you're, you're so focused on your new music. You forget mm. about all the previous stuff. You forget about yeah. all the gigs. You forget about the tours. You, you, you forget about it all. Cause you're always looking forward and yeah, you need to sometimes be like, so I had them up just to remind me of like, yeah. Oh, actually, you know what? Like, you remember when you were out there on the street talking to strangers, <laughs> like yeah. in the snow, trying to yeah. sell that album. And it's like, okay, cool. Like you've actually come quite a long way now. Now you're doing this and you're doing that. So yeah, sure. You're not where you want to be yet. But if you look at that progress. It's how far you've come. You. 
same that's, in a, gym, that's a great way that's mm. great honestly because yeah it's very easy to forget about it you get so enmeshed in what you're currently doing you forget how far yeah. you've come that's that's a great yeah. reminder think about the first time you bench pressed 200 pounds yeah right the first, yeah. first time you deadlifted 300 right it was like man like i remember that i remember the first time i benched 100 kilos yeah it's pretty it was a pretty ugly bench but like i specifically yeah. you know i remember it and now it's like okay cool like 100 is a breeze yeah. you know you can do that for sets yeah. for, you know but you're just like yeah you have to remember that i mean i remember when i couldn't do a pull-up yeah. i can do a single pull-up so right. it's like yeah cool i'm trying to get stronger but yo dude you, you could there was a time there was a time you couldn't do one of these which is pretty pretty common for i mean when i started out i couldn't do a single pull-up um yeah it's really difficult so you mentioned you're hyper conscientious. Have you done the personality test? Mm, you did a couple you of Jordan yeah. Peterson's. Yeah, I've done Jordan Peterson's one. Um, the was it five? The big, big five. Big five. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I've also done the Myers Briggs one as well. Nice. Yeah. I just did Jordan Peterson's the other day, and it was mm. well. I don't. It's not shocking actually, but I was a one percent in agreeableness, which I oh, didn't wow. know. But, <laughs> The very lowest you can possibly be, pretty much. <laughs> but you're not uh, in prison, so that's good. Yeah. What? Um, <laughs> so conscientiousness. Maybe mm. we could tie that back into your career path. So you've always been a doer, effectively. Yes. Which um, I can't remember the two aspects of conscientiousness, but uh, it's industriousness, maybe, and um, industriousness and orderliness. Orderliness. That's right. Yeah. So yeah. basically how hardworking you are and how organized you are in a way. Um, the test is super yeah. cool. I, I think it's called understandingmyself.com. It was 10 Underst bucks. Yeah. Understandyourself.com. Understandyourself.com. It was $10, 20 minutes to do the test. And it gives you a very detailed report. Um, it, was, it was interesting. So if people want to check that out, I think I learned a lot about myself doing that. Yeah. I'm um, curious what were your what your what were your other ones that stood out? So, extremely low agreeableness. Uh <laughs> low neuroticism, like 18%. Mm -hmm. Um moderately high extroversion, 60%. Mm -hmm. Um I'm I'm spacing on the fourth one. The the last one that was really high for me was openness. My openness mm -hmm. was like 95%. I forget mm -hmm. um it's ocean. So it's openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, assertiveness. Is that one of them? Agreeableness. Agreeableness. Agreeableness yeah. was low. And then neuroticism was low for yeah. me. So, yeah. so where we've got, we've got, um, as I expected, we've got somewhat similar personality types, which mm. makes, which makes sense. So my neuroticism was the ultra, ultra low one, which was like mm. two, right? Uh, neuroticism was two. Agreeableness, I was somewhat average for a guy. I was think it was 39, 39th yeah. percentile. Um, openness, extraordinarily high. Makes yeah. sense being a creator, being an entrepreneur. Yeah. Conscientiousness, very high. And then um, what's the other one? Extra, yeah, I'm an extrovert as well, but not like, moderately extroverted. Not yeah. like super high, maybe like 70% or so. Yeah, I had one that was very high. One aspect that was high which are for oh assertiveness was really high but compassion was really low actually so okay yeah we again we're similar yeah, yeah. my assertive if i remember correctly my assertiveness was like 96 yeah and then um what's the other component of that it's actually i think it's is it compassion 
No, compassion is yeah. part of agreeableness. It's oh, um, right. agreeableness is compassion and politeness, and then um, oh, enthusiasm. Enthusiasm was low yeah. for me, very low. Yeah, yeah. yeah mine, mine was like forty or something. Yeah. So yeah, we've we've actually got kind of similar. Are you? Uh, what's your Myers Briggs type? E you know E N T J. Or <laughs> oh really? Wow. Same. Yeah. I, I borderline so. on the E. My E and I is like I'm always down the middle between E and I. Okay. So they that's call it an so ambivert sometimes. I don't. It, yeah, I think I'm actually an introvert. I get energy alone, but I can go out and extrovert really well. So mm. I'm just somewhere in the middle. That's so yeah. funny. We're the same though. Yeah. Yeah. No. I, I thought so. Um, I know who else is in ENTJ. Is uh, do you know Ed Lattimore? Yeah, you know Ed Lattimore. Yeah, 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 he's 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 yeah. also ENTJ, which also makes sense. You, I think you can even tell from people's Twitters. Yeah, that's one thing I really like about Twitter is you really get to if you follow people for some time, you get to really sort of see yeah. how their mind. I think that's why if you when you meet people off Twitter, you I think you know them better than you would from I don't know like an Instagram or, yeah. or something like that because you can't really. Unless you just don't tweet or you yeah, really, yeah, really yeah. put up a front, you can't really hide who you are. Like it right. comes, it, yeah. it comes out, right? Like yeah. Even with celebrities and stuff, right? You can yeah. see celebrities you'd want to hang out with and the ones you're like, nah, like, yeah, I, like yeah. your I like your movies, but you're kind of looking under the hood a little bit over a long period of time where people's mm. natural attitude uh, just sort of comes out on Twitter, which is a great point. It does, yeah. Um, just to pivot this back a little bit to career relationship with money, how that's changed for you. You know, I think a lot of people is, I don't know if this is true worldwide. I kind of assume that it is, but in the U S the education on money is, is virtually zero. So I, I like to tell people often I have a master's degree in accounting and finance. They literally, I've learned zero in my entire educational career about personal finance, like managing your own money. It's just not something that's taught in school at all. It's learned in the home mostly, mm -hmm. which is disadvantageous to people that don't have that, that rooting. So, and, and me personally, it's just, that's been one of the things I've had to learn on my own, right? Like I had to go into the world. I've read a ton of books about personal financial management and all these other things, but it's, it's not just like managing a spreadsheet. There's an attitude to it, right? Where your attitude towards money has to be proper, I think, to, to be financially successful. So have you experienced a changing relationship with money and an attitude on money as you've gone from, I guess, childhood, adulthood into your, your current phase of your career? Um, I guess to some degree. Um, I think it's matured both through natural means and through me going out of my way and putting in work and educating myself to learn stuff kind of as mm -hmm. you were saying because you're right the education system isn't going to give you much of that just like it's not mm -hmm. going to teach you much about uh you know health and nutrition mm -hmm. and uh, i have a little conspiracy theory that both of those things are not accidental right. but um it, it's it's very true even if you go all the way to university level or as you said master level mm -hmm. so my view has I think it's evolved. I mean, I've grown up in a fiscally responsible family, yeah. right? So my parents, I don't remember, I think my parents really taught us much directly about mm -hmm. money, but 
implicitly, I learned number one, that money is valuable and that money is something you work for, Mm -hmm. right? Just from seeing the example of, you know, my parents working and, Mm -hmm. you know, having a certain allowance when I was very young or the fact that, you know, maybe I could do this and that and, you know, do some work and earn additional money, whatever it was. And then I also started, I mean, I'm a, I started (laughs) I've, uh, I've always sold stuff, man. Like when I was in boarding school, I used to, I used to sell stuff. I was running like import export from Saudi Arabia to the UK. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm, I'm one of those guys who's always been like entrepreneurial, right? Even as a kid, I was always. That sounds like a great story for the girls in boarding school. <laughs> I'm an importing and exporting. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was always selling stuff, man. Uh, Timberland boots, candy. Um, I even sold cigarettes at one point. Don't tell anybody. Um, but yeah, so all kinds of stuff. And then, yeah, as time has gone on, I've just learned more, I guess you could say about the, you know, what money is mm-hmm. um, and the the banking system and economics. I did study economics in school, which was useful actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, just doing my own reading and research. I, I wouldn't call myself any type of financial expert mm-hmm. or economic expert, but I would say I know more about it and probably think more about it than the average person. Mm. Um, I think to even be in the world of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, if you're in it in any sort of serious way and you've really looked into it, then you do end up going down this rabbit hole of like, okay, well, what is money? Mm -hmm. Right? People will say, oh, Bitcoin is fake money or Bitcoin has no value or whatever it is. And it's like, okay, well, all right, let's go back to the basics. What is money? What's the history of it? What are dollars and pounds, mm-hmm. euros? Are they valuable? Why are they valuable? What about mm-hmm. inflation? What about taxes? Right about it's it's a deep rabbit hole and yeah. it covers everything from ethics to politics to morality to history to economics, all of these things. And most people don't think about money that deeply, right? It's just right. if you ask people, most people, what is money? It's like, oh, it's coins and it's notes or yeah. Maybe if they're a bit more sophisticated, they might say, oh, it's some you know digits on a screen and maybe they know a little bit about you know, it's made by the Fed uh, or, you know, it comes from this treasury or whatever. So I, like I said, I'm, I'm not an expert at it, but over the years I've looked into this and just researched more about investing and just e- educating myself to the best of my mm-hmm. ability on it. And it's an ongoing process. It's an ongoing process. Absolutely. So I'd say that's how my view on it has developed. And from a sort of more philosophical perspective, what motivates me to even earn money or to do a lot of the things that I do has changed quite fundamentally. I think when I was, uh, when I was younger, when I was in my say late teens or even early twenties, especially as like I got into music and stuff and you're always like, yeah, I just want to have like a lot of money so I can have like a cool Mm -hmm. car and get chicks or whatever. It's Mm -hmm. kind of a very superficial view. Whereas now, I'm much more motivated by what you can do with it, right? So Mm -hmm. money is freedom, right? It Mm -hmm. it enables freedom. It also enables you to help a lot of people in various ways, actually. If you have money, if you have wealth, you can't pour from an empty jug. But if you have resources and additional resources, okay, cool. Like you can do cool things in terms of philanthropy and charity, et cetera. Um, later down the line, or if you, I don't have a family of my own yet, but mm. in the few, I'm, I'm already thinking like, okay, well, cool. I can look after myself, but I want to be able to, you know, look after 
future children and mm-hmm. all of this and that. So it's more of a long-term perspective in that sense. And also in terms of the way it's made, because this is a whole nother part of the money question, right? Is it's not just people understanding what money is, but also understanding how is it made, right? Mm-hmm. The whole world, like when people think of the economy, they often think of the stock market, right? Mm-hmm. Or they think of just uh, capitalism or whatever it is. And you saw this a lot last year when there were all the debates going on around lockdowns, right? And people framed it as this dichotomy of, you know, either you care about the economy or you care about lives, right? So if you're anti-lockdown, it's because you're putting money above people and you just care about the economy and you just care about money and you don't care, right? That that's, it's a false framing, but that's how it was framed. And people are not, when they're saying that, they're not understanding what the economy is, right? right? The people are the economy. Like if people are not working, Businesses aren't running. People aren't going to work. Like you've killed the economy. Like we are, we are the economy, all of us. Yeah. Like voluntary trades, like with you and your employer or you and people you're serving, your customers, your listeners, your readers, whatever it is, all of this is the economy. It's not just like a ticker on a, (laughs) it's not just a ticker you see on TV or something like that. And you really got to see how most people didn't really understand this general concept when they were framing it that way. And they're also not thinking of, okay, well, if you let the economy tank, if you want to talk about health, what is the health effect on that? Here in the UK, we have an NHS, National Health Service, right? Which is funded through taxpayer income. So if people are not working, you can't protect the NHS if the NHS has no funding because you've stopped everybody from working, right? Even if you've got um, private healthcare or whatever it is, then you can't if if you stop the economy from working, like this has all these negative repercussions. I mean, you can Mm -hmm. go and study what happened, you know, in the Great Depression or when countries get hyperinflation, whatever. It leads to a lot of turmoil, a lot of problems, including uh, health issues and poverty, et cetera. So it's not, you you really saw that kind of juvenile framing of how most people think about the economy and uh, money, et cetera, not realizing how holistic it is. Yeah, no, that's a great, point that, that people were taking the that polarized or black and white view of either you're pro money and economy or pro human life mm-hmm. which is insane because yeah. it's the same thing frankly like to your point it's the economy is people trading with one another to overcome scarcity effectively in the world right to to accomplish greater results with less efforts and if we mm-hmm. break that down, you're actually increasing scarcity, right? You're just making yeah. things harder for people. Um, and the other, you know, the point there that's interesting to me is that the the people didn't understand the role of coercion in that entire event. Like it's mm. it is so antithetical to freedom to take an order from someone on high that you're just going to stay home to try and protect others. Like it's almost like the responsibility is really on you, right? If you truly are afraid of the virus or anything for that matter, Mm -hmm. you need to take responsibility for your own life um, and take precautionary measures. I don't think, I mean, at least in my worldview, you cannot really justify coercion. I mean, very few 
you know, we don't have to get too deep into the natural law <laughs> thing. When someone, you know, murders someone, do you have a right to go and get an eye for an eye and all that? But in very few cases is coercion justifiable in my opinion. Mm. But in the, in the modern world, which is such an eye opener to me in the wake of March, 2020, it's like people just swallowed it hook, line and sinker. Like, Oh, mm. I'm to stay at home I'm do what I'm told. Stop working. Great. I'll just do all of that. And then to, to see the, the cultural infighting and polarization as a result of that too, <sighs> was just, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I it's know. really weird. It was, it's, it was very interesting from a, you know, I think the psychology of this whole thing is far more interesting than the virology or epidemiology. Yes. We've really learned a lot about human psychology and human behavior, both on an individual and a group level, even how different personalities respond to it, right? I think yeah. the fact that we both have this certain type of personality, especially mm -hmm. being low in neuroticism, <laughs> right? Yeah. We keep That's a cool it. head. And we're viewing this thing in a rational way without just getting like emotionally jacked up. Oh my gosh, you're going to kill my grandma. Put on a mask. Like do this, do right. that. Right. Like we're just kind of like, yo, you know, staying, <laughs> staying rational and chill here whilst everyone else is kind of going a little bit nuts with it and being like, wait, like, let's think about this. Let's, what about this side? Or let's think about that. Yeah. And we really saw the power of fear on yeah. a on a population in every right. country. That's the crazy thing is how global it was. Right. Um, and that, that was the issue because the thing is my whole, I, I, I took, you know, I've I took a hard stand against all of this coercion from, from very early on. I, I didn't stop. I didn't, I opposed the lockdown from day one. I opposed yeah. the mask mandate from day one. I've been consistent throughout. And <clears throat> it's been very weird because I'm actually uh, from all the backlash I've got, I have received from it. I've received a lot of praise and love, but people also don't understand that I'm, I'm actually supporting their rights. Right? Yeah. The people who are attacking me, I'm like, bro, I am supporting your rights and your basic civil liberties. And like the government is telling you, you can't go outside. You can't see your parents. I'm like, bro, I'm fighting for you. If mm -hmm. you don't want to see your parents and you don't want to go outside, that's fine. I support your right to do that too. Yeah. You want to wear three masks? You can wear three masks. <laughs> I don't think that the government should mandate, right? Like to me, it was just the mandates. It wasn't yes. like, and, and, and something like lockdowns, totally unprecedented. Right. People are now talking about people have been, uh, one of the worst thing that's, that's come out of this is coercion has been normalized, right. right? People have got it. The concept of a lockdown. I mean, even the word lockdown, if you heard the word lockdown in 2019, you think of like the prison system, like locking yep. down a prison or something, right? right. Like the, the notion of locking down businesses and the economy and people like putting yes. perfectly healthy people. Since when do we quarantine healthy people? Right. <laughs> right. Since when right. in the history of medicine do you right. quarantine healthy people? Like so many things here have been unprecedented. And because yeah. of the fear and the propaganda and the narratives, I think a lot of people literally for the past year and a half haven't looked up and just gone, wait, like what's like, this is not normal. Like we've yeah. had, we've had disease outbreaks in the past. Some have been far more severe than this. If you look yes. historically yeah. and the response was not, was not like this, right? The, right. the notion, okay, we're just going to just shut everything down. Everyone stay home and then keep it rolling for months and months, yes. and months like and years and keep it going and then do it again and then do it again. And, do, and I'm just like, guys, this is not how it's supposed to be. I mean, we're not North Korea. We're not China. If you live in the West, if UK, USA, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, these are the countries that 
Uh, you know, my view on this is obviously been a, the truth has been revealed, but these are the countries that have always, for the past several decades, at least our entire lifetimes, they very much prided themselves on being liberal, mm -hmm. and democratic, and mm -hmm. free and open. You know, we're not North Korea. We're not China. Mm -hmm. We're not mm -hmm. Soviet Russia. Like, you don't just lock the population up and, you know, propagandize to them on TV and do this and do that. Like, that's not how it works. You don't, you don't encourage your neighbors to snitch on each other for having right. a barbecue, right? Yeah. Like, that's not how you do things in, in the UK, US. And so, and again, maybe this is my perspective coming from having grown up in a country which is more open in its authoritarianism. Yes. Right. So living in a country like Saudi Arabia as an expat, obviously, you are not subject to all of the rules that um, a local is. But at the same time, I lived in the country for two decades. I understand how a, a lot of things there work and I've spoken to people, and, you know, like I've, I've seen real Saudi. I didn't just yeah. live 100 percent in a bubble the whole time. And it's a totally different way of doing things there. And absolutely. There are many aspects of the society and the culture and the government which are much more, uh, we can use the word authoritarian, right? Mm -hmm. You can do this, you cannot do that, and this is the punishment for this, and this is that. And that's a whole nother conversation. But I think that me sort of seeing that and the juxtaposition with somewhere like the UK or the USA, even if you juxtaposition the UK and the USA, they're actually really different countries. Mm -hmm. I think people think the UK and US are more similar than they are because we speak the same language. Mm -hmm. But in terms of culture and the political system, the UK is much closer, I believe, to other Western European countries, say, mm -hmm. um, than it is to the US. I think the US is actually very much an anomalous country in terms of the way the whole concept of rights is structured there and having the yeah. Constitution and the Bill of Rights, having, you know, uh, having it in law that you've got a you know, you, the U.S. constitutionally is based on the concept of negative rights, whereas most people in the U.K. and Europe think in terms of positive rights. Mm -hmm. So they think that the government is there to give them their rights and to give them stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay. Whereas think, in the USA, yeah, yeah I mean, some, some, you know, the Democratic Party, you know, and its voters have kind of shifted on this one. But traditionally, anyway, in the USA, it's negative rights. You know, it's... Yes. it's uh, it's freedom not, from instead of freedom to. Freed, yes, which yeah. is really important. It's yeah. really important. Yes. And most people don't get this, right? Most people in the UK think the Second Amendment is nuts. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? They think it's nuts. A lot of people even think the First Amendment is nuts because it's it triggers that sort of danger response. And the notion that I'm like, no, it's not the government like giving you the right to do this. It's like you are, these are natural born rights. So yeah. that fundamental difference. Right is really key no that's I, I very important perspective of either the government is the generator of rights that you have yes. in the world or these rights are innate and inalienable mm -hmm. and the government will restrict some rights in the interest of of something uh you know some greater cause i guess mm -hmm. i'm very much on the I, I have <laughs> monikered myself freedom maximalist, which is very close <laughs> to crypto anarchist libertarianism um, with some subtle differences. But I just don't think that um, I think that mentality is very dangerous where the, the government is effectively giving you your rights. 
that mm-hmm. implies the government is God in the world, effectively. Yeah. Also means know. it can just take them. <laughs> right, right. Also means it can just take them. Um, exactly. Without without a fight. Right. And so it is it? Take are they? What, this government action we've seen over the past eighteen months. It seems as may, maybe though they're actually preying on neuroticism in a lot of ways. Right. It's like mm-hmm. so people that are low in neuroticism, we're going to sit here all day, be like, I don't give a shit. Wear three masks. <laughs> stay at home. Go out. Don't. Doesn't matter. Just don't tread on me. Kind of thing. But these people that are, I guess, uh, high in neuroticism or even hyper neurotic, mm. they've just gone berserk online. You know, like I, I've, I was assaulted, not assaulted, but verbally assaulted by a guy walking to a parking lot. I wasn't wearing wow. a mask and he was a you know large, overweight, older guy. And he's like, have some respect. I can't believe you're, you're not thinking about your elders and you're hurting people. You're putting people at risk. I'm like I'm walking through a parking lot outside on a sunny day. Wow. And I'm 20 feet from anyone. I'm not <laughs> near anyone. And this guy's yeah. upset with me about not wearing a mask. And I'm like, holy shit, this guy's, I mean, he's been hijacked or so. I don't know. Yes. I don't know how else to describe it. It's like you're upset about literally nothing. There's nothing happening here. Mm-hmm. It's just a man walking through a parking lot. So uh, yeah. So they they're preying on this neuroticism, it seems to be like, and to your point, they're normalizing, which is extremely scary going forward, normalizing this concept of lockdowns, even the mm-hmm. language, even mm-hmm. just normalizing that into our language. Um, I've seen people talk about the, the World Economic Forum has t- talked about the possibility of environmental lockdowns now. Of course. Yeah. So like, what does that mean? The weather's bad and you got to <laughs> curfew, you got to go home. Like, what is this? Where does it yeah. go? Yeah, I, and, and this is the thing, right? And something that uh, I've said this on a couple podcasts, but one of my biggest realizations over the past year and a half has been when you scare people sufficiently, they won't just they won't just embrace authoritarianism; they will demand it. They run to it, yeah. right? And that's yeah. that's what you've seen, right? That's mm-hmm. the the whole policing other people and, you know, forcing this and trying to, right, not just, it's not enough for you to stay home or for you to wear a mask or for you to get the vaccine. You've got people trying to force other people to stay home or force other people to wear a mask or force. And again, this is unprecedented. We've had diseases our whole life. Viruses Mm. are not new, right? Right, People are acting as if people were immortal prior to 2020. It's like viruses have always been there. They just didn't have PR teams and marketing departments and merchandise, right? Like the PR on this virus has been nuts. I want to hire them for my new album. (laughs) And they're just dropping new variants like mixtapes now, like Lambda variant, like take this one, have that one. I'm just like, guys, this is insane. And what's crazy is this was planned, right? And that you can go on the UK government website and there's a document there from March 2020, literally talking about various psychological tactics that can be used to make the population more scared and to get them to adhere more to the guidelines. It's, it's literally got a line in there saying uh, something about young people and people in low risk populations are not sufficiently scared. So basically, this is how we can uh, use social pressure and the media, wow. et cetera, to scan. This is on the government website. This isn't some crazy thing. I mean, if you go on the U- EU Commission website, there's a document from September 2019 before COVID. Mm-hmm. September 2019 called A Roadmap to Vaccination Passports running from wow. 2019 to 2022 on the EU Commission website, 
right? It's before COVID. So this is the thing. All this time, people are being called conspiracy theorists and this and I'm like, bro, like here's, go on the official website. It's literally telling you that they are planning to implement vaccine passports throughout the European Union. It's on their site. And they were thinking about this before COVID was a thing. So when I tell you, okay, this is where they're trying to get to, I'm not saying this with my tinfoil hat on. I'm saying like, yo, this is what's happening. Just open your eyes. And even just everyone's like, oh, why don't the rules make sense? Why is it like this? Why is it? I'm like, guys, because it's not about your health. <laughs> it's not, <laughs> it's not about, about health. It's not it's about managing control. a virus. It's yeah. it's about control. And another interesting thing is, number one, I mean, you can see how much, how much, uh, how this crazy stuff happened in the 20th century. But I think that we've been comfortable for so long that number one, we take liberty for granted generally mm-hmm. as a society. Um, I think that's like a big thing in the West. People really, really take a lot of things for granted and don't understand what people around the, the world don't have and what mm-hmm. their ancestors fought for. So I think that leads to a level of complacency, but also, and this is a, this is quite a heavy thought. I was just thinking about this the other day, but this thinking that, I think we always imagine that history is history and we mm. forget that we are living in history, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. 2021, 2022, this is going to be in the future. This is going to be history. Just like we look back and we're like, oh, this thing happened in 1950 and in 1964, mm-hmm. you had this. And in 1982 was like worse. History is still going on, guys. Don't think yep. that history is a live of, event. <laughs> it's a live event, right? I imagine that back in 1910, they did not predict that in the next 50 years, they were going to get two world wars. They were going to get the Holocaust, the Holodomor. They were going to get like all, they're going to rise of Soviet Russia, Nazi Germany, Mm -hmm. Maoist China. I don't think that the average person in 1910 was there like, oh, okay. Like all this stuff is going to unfold, right? We're going to have all this horrible, great. Like, so, you know, and, and this is only two generations away from us and human beings have not evolved so much over the past uh, couple of decades that we're now magically totally different from our ancestors. So this is, and I I don't say this for it to, it can be considered a dark thought, but people need to just understand and be vigilant Mm -hmm. that all the awful stuff that has happened in history, human beings are still capable of. Yes. Slavery, genocide, murder, atrocities, communism, Nazism, like racial ideology, all of this stuff Mm. can happen again. It can happen. I think we think, okay, we're so advanced that that's in the past. It's it can't happen again. It's impossible, right? And I'm like, no, guys, it's not right. And I'm not trying to fear monger. I'm just saying we need to all be vigilant. When you start seeing, um, you know, some of the rhetoric over the past year has been very concerning. Well, yeah, I think it starts with these attacks on the language, which is my biggest concern that, you know, the language is being actively targeted, it seems like, and, and manipulated to the point to where it's losing its meaning. And that, you know, if you're going to be, if you're a 20th century despot, that's the first thing you do. If you're coming into power, you want to silence the voice of dissent. Or you want to introduce terminology that's intentionally confusing. So one of the yes. things they did in the 20th century was liberalism used to mean low to no government, right? It was like minimal government. Mm. But then government introduced uh, ideologues, basically, that manipulated that to make it one branch of government, right? It's a more liberal 
uh, side of the, the equation. So it, it really is our thoughts shaping our life. So the battlegrounds taking place on the, in the, the plane of knowledge, right? The epistemic plane. And I can't help my own conspiracy theory, if you want to call it that, which even that term as a government invention, yes. as we know, yes. um, you know, to your point, we've had much more lethal health scares historically with a much lesser, historically that had a lesser state response. Mm -hmm. This particular virus, which was pretty much just the flu, if we get down to just the numbers of how lethal it is, it's really not statistically different than the flu. The excess of state response here, I really think is because the mo the nation state model of coercion and control is losing relevance in the digital age. I do think people are waking up to it to some extent. I think we're kind of in that state where it's darkest before dawn sort of thing. It's really trying to reinforce its validity and relevance before um, software eats the nation state, if you will, that kind of thesis. Mm -hmm. And I think this, this pandemic response is states trying to reinforce the validity of their borders. They see that they're losing control. And this is actually predicted in a book I've mentioned a lot, The Sovereign Individual. I don't know if you've read this yet. It was written in the late 90s. I know of it. I haven't read it yet. It's, it's, on, it's on my reading list. It's, a, it's, a, it's not a fun read, but it predicted a lot of these things. It predicted social media, predicted Bitcoin, predicted uh, a scamdemic type mm -hmm. event. And I think, you know, again, I think for me, it's, it is largely rooted in the money. It's a, if the state loses control over the currency, that is their implement of authoritarianism. If you can't control the money, all of a sudden you've lost most control over people. Like it's just so much easier to control human action and population flows when you have the money monopolized and fully under control. Bitcoin's mm -hmm. a big affront to that. It's a major threat. So I think that that's what we're seeing. You know, I think to your point in 1910, they did not see the hundreds of millions of people that were going to be murdered by the state on the horizon or very few no. people saw that. It would, have, um, would have, it would have sounded like a conspiracy theory. Imagine, imagine yeah. at the early, imagine at the early, um, early Nazi Germany, imagine someone trying to warn about the Holocaust yeah. and saying, Oh my gosh, like this could happen. Right. right? It could go. They'd be like, you'd get laughed out the room. They'd yes. be like, what are you even, what are you even talking about? Right. Even while they were doing it, because yes. I mean, the truth about it didn't really come out until after the fact. Right. That's right. So I think even then people might be like, oh, OK, you know, maybe Jews are being mistreated, but they're not doing what you're and saying. It's, all, it's, it's like, never oh. a sudden, you know, uh, move towards that. You don't go from like just whatever Germany was before nazi germany to the full you know concentration camp internment camp it's these small incremental changes over time that again normalize certain things that um, people would historically find just just repulsive yes. and i think maybe the history books will look back on this as that in my mind it's just the 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 model of coercion and control starting to fail mm -hmm. right because people have more optionality in the digital age we're waking up to a large extent. There's this whole decentralized media movement, which we're participating in right now. This, this intellectual dark web, if you want to call it that. And then there's this separation of money and state, which is a bigger macro structural change. I think the state is just starting to lose relevance and it's fighting for its, for its life. Essentially, yep. you're seeing the organization of the state in its death throes, the beginning mm -hmm. of its death throes. 
Um, so I don't know. Maybe that's an optimistic viewpoint, but I, I yeah, I, I hope I, that's I hope what so. it is. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I mean, there's so many interesting things. I mean, as much of the as much as this past year and a half has irritated me on so many levels and upset me, the amount I've just learned has been really interesting. There's so many interesting points. I mean, here's here's something that nobody talks about with this whole pandemic thing. This is, it was only possible because of technology. Mm. This couldn't have happened in 1995. Even in 2005, this couldn't have happened. Mm. Why? Because you couldn't tell hundreds of millions of people to work from home and mm. use Zoom calls. You right. couldn't tell kids to just do remote learning from your home, right? Without that, I mean, if this happened in literally, let's say 2000, even with the internet and stuff, like th th those things just wouldn't have been options. It would have been like, right. no, we gotta, we gotta get kids back in school. We can't yeah. just pull the kids out. We can't just have everyone sitting around their house, not doing anything for ages and ages. People go, no, I need to go back to work. I need to make yeah. money. You can't just like pay people to just, you know, sit at home and go on Zoom calls and whatever. So not a lot of people bring that point up. Um, but if it ha had happened literally a decade plus earlier, maybe, you know, people would have been scared for a couple of weeks, but then it would have just been like, okay, guys, we need to get back, get back into it. And you also wouldn't have had the social media to amplify mm -hmm. the scare and the divisions. It's, you know, you'd have the TV, but that yeah. would be the best. You wouldn't have, you know, these bots and um, social media accounts, you know, amplifying this and this, it, it, it wouldn't have, it would have just been like a short thing of like, oh, okay. All oh, right. Oh, it's not killing kids. Oh, the survival rate's well over 99%. Okay, yeah. no worries. All right, well, okay, let's protect like the elderly people, you know, if you're elderly or something like, yeah. you know, take it easy and we'll work on a vaccine for you, but everyone else get back to work. Kids go back to school, yeah. um, you know, don't be keeping the, but yeah. So I think technology very much enabled. Uh, I think it's a, it's a great point because and response. it's pointing to this ambivalence too with tech in that it seems like, the it really seems like the world is just unlimited possibilities at this point with digital technology that it could go this dystopian path toward this Orwellian command and control future, or you know something like Bitcoin. It could actually separate money from state, demonopolize money, uh, enable people untold levels of self sovereignty, control over their data, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So it's like we're at this fork in the road, right? And and COVID's yeah. a great microcosm of that. It's to your point, technology enabled it, but technology is also what's, I think, potentially inhibits it from happening again at some point. Mm -hmm. The state just couldn't enforce this coercion. So where, how do you, I mean, the, I always come back to just humility at this point in history mm -hmm. because things are changing so fast and the, the spectrum of possibility seems so wide. Like you could literally go, either direction how do you deal with that how do you deal with that level of uncertainty <laughs> do you think how do you see technology playing into this where do you where do you think we go next i mean man it's it's a huge question i it's something i've spent a lot of time thinking about over the past year both for myself individually but also for the wider world and for future generations you know i don't have kids yet but i do think about okay well what kind of world will i want my kids to grow up in? Do I want them to grow up in a authoritarian regime where you have digital tyranny and massive censorship and they can't think freely and talk freely and they have some social credit score or something 
which will block them from traveling if they have the wrong opinion or they hang out, which is literally what's happening in China. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, I don't, I don't want that. Right. I want them to be at least as free and have as much opportunity as we do. And my view is, um, you know, the truth is you have to fight for freedom, mm. right? You do have to fight for it. And I think a lot of people, again, I think things have been so chilled and comfortable and safe for such a long time for us, right? I mean, mm. you know, our, our generation, we've been, we've had it easy, man. You know, we mm. haven't had like mm. big wars to fight in on a civil level, like civil war or international war. Um, I mean, guys our age, I mean, if we'd been born a couple decades earlier, it's highly likely we would have just been drafted and sent out to fight in some war or whatever, right? And mm. we haven't had that. We haven't had some super lethal, I forget what people think they're living through now. We haven't had some actual plague, which is just torn yeah. through population and decimated people. We haven't had, you know, a Nazi Germany or like some huge communist regime, which is, so we've, we've had it easy. I mean, go on Twitter, look at what people are complaining about, right? We have it, we have it easy. It's very, very comfortable. And um, I think that's in one hand, that's good. You know, it's good. Safety is good, right? Security is good. Um, But lack of vigilance is dangerous. Yeah. And I, I think people need to be vigilant and see warning signs. I mean, I mean, like coming to something which, again, people don't really think about. I think being a deep thinker is a gift and a curse, isn't it? Right? Something like, something like when Trump got kicked off of social media, coordinated deplatforming of the U.S. president yeah. from Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, et cetera. Like regardless of somebody's individual position mm. and opinion on Trump, that is so concerning. Yeah. Right. That that yeah. is so concerning. Like when I talk yeah. to some people, I'm like, dude, like forget, like for a moment, suspend the fact you don't like Trump. Like, yeah. can you not see how much of a dangerous precedent it is right. to have? Like, people are worried about the government. I'm like, yo, big tech just silenced the most powerful man in the world, right? And and again, you saw this coming. He wasn't the first person to get deplatformed, right? right? You know, they went for it. They took off Alex Jones. They took yeah. off Gavin McInnes. They took out Laura Loomer. They took out this yeah. person, that person. And people were there like celebrating like, oh, well, I don't like Alex Jones anyway, you know, yeah. or I don't. And I'm like, guys, you're missing, you're missing the point, right? There are plenty of people out there whose opinions I do not like at yes. all, right? But I don't want to see AOC De- kicked off of Instagram and Facebook and right. Twitter. I'm like, no guys, that's, that's dangerous, right? Like that's yes. very concerning. It's not about me agreeing with you or disagreeing. I mean, we live in a digital age. If you don't have access to these platforms, especially if you're in certain fields, if you're in politics, media, entertainment, et cetera, like let's yeah. be real. Like the real world and the digital world are so strongly in- interconnected yes. now that you can't really do the, oh, uh, well, it doesn't matter. I think it's like, it does, you know, just yeah. like if they shut down, you know, if they cut off the electricity and water to your house, cause they don't like your political ideas. That's really concerning. Like, right. no, no, like even if you, someone's a freaking Nazi, like yeah. they should be able to use the telephone lines yeah. and, and have their water and electricity, right? Like they can't go out and physically harm someone or something like that. But you know, whatever your views are, you well, should the be right- able to, the right to express, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, or at least play, at least play in the rules, right? I mean, someone right. simply, I mean, you could have a rule saying, okay, 
you know, you can use Twitter if you're a Nazi, but you can't post like videos of, <laughs> you can't post death threats against, you know, Jews or minority people, right? But like, you know, what's in your head is, is what's in, is what's in your head. Right. And so, yeah. but when you, the thing with all these people I name is they didn't violate, they didn't actually violate the policies. Mm-hmm. Right. So Twitter can have a rule. Twitter can have rules, you know, YouTube can yeah. have rules, whatever, you know, if they want to say, you know what, you can't post hardcore porn on YouTube. Well, mm-hmm. Fair enough. Right. You know, you do yeah. it, they kick you off. Fair enough. But if it's just this very vague, you know, very vague, like, mm, it was offensive. Right. Was, uh, you, then they get arbitrary like, control over. Yeah. Like, yeah. Why was Trump? De- why was Trump deplatformed? Here's, like, here's a, this is a conundrum for me though, because it's okay. they're private companies. So technically they can do what they want. Right. So mm-hmm. to me, this just highlights the need. We need uncensorable media. We need yeah. media that you can't be censored from. Mm. And you saw, but you saw what happened with this situation, right? What happened next? They took down Parler. Right. At the AWS they took, level, right? Yep. They took down the alternative, right? So yeah. that's the concern and the coordination. Mm-hmm. Trump didn't just lose his, his Twitter account. He lost his Facebook account. He lost his right. Instagram account. Like right. all, all on the same day. Same with Alex Jones. Remember it happened on the same day, yeah. all on the same day. Right. So that's really concerning. That's like, okay. So all Very these companies, yeah. right. You're not behaving like private companies. Like you're literally coordinating yes. to deal with, take out somebody that you just don't like. Is the person a criminal? No, like there's rapists and murderers. There's rapists and murderers on Twitter and Facebook, bro. Mm. Right? Are you telling me that someone who misgendered someone or who, um, you know, made a bad taste joke or yeah. said something offensive, like you're telling, like, oh, right. So the murderer can use Twitter, but this person can't because they said an edgy joke. It's right? A that's power crazy. Game. And the, yeah. yeah it, it, so, so that's the concern. I mean, I'm, again, someone who's libertarian leaning, I, you know, typically, would go with the, 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 the problem is the, like I say, it's the lack of transparency, the, the non, uh, you know, the rules being misapplied, the rules not being applied in any sort of consistent fashion. Cause at the mm-hmm. same time you can go on Twitter and you can see some pretty nasty stuff on there, man. Like you can see yep. some really awful tweet, even by prominent people, blue check mark account, directly threatening violence, right? Literally yep. I've seen direct calls to violence from verified accounts on Twitter, but then they're just like, Oh no, that's fine. And yeah. then someone else, you know, makes it, I got, I got temporarily suspended for saying, okay, dude. I, I heard this in one of your songs, maybe. Um, <laughs> so yeah. what, a couple of things there real, like for the audience just to think about, and this is something I'm thinking about a lot, is that the only answer to this though, mm-hmm. there's only one computer network in the world that no one can stop. And that's really its core value proposition is that Bitcoin is it's rules that nobody can change. Uh-huh. And it's a computer network that nobody can stop. So there's experiments right now with like things like Sphinx Chat, which is an application built on the Lightning Network, which is built on Bitcoin. Um, I'm just naming one. There's several out there that are effectively unstoppable media tools. So you can put your podcast on Sphinx Chat and then it's that's it. It's anchored to the Lightning Network, which is anchored to the Bitcoin blockchain. Nobody can remove it, including the infrastructure layer. AWS uh-huh. cannot censor you. So I think those tools are the only way we'll ever have true freedom of speech in the digital age. Yeah. Otherwise, this, there's always going to be pressure to censor. And there's always going to be someone, uh, if, there's a, if there's a gatekeeper of the platform, they will always have the authority to do that. Yeah. Um, so all that said, I think that's just really important to think about, mm-hmm. that f- to have freedom of speech, you need unstoppable media. 
But to your experience with getting censored, maybe you could tell that story of the comment the individual made to you mm -hmm. and your response was, okay, dude. Mm -hmm. And you got censored. <laughs> I mean, this is a crazy story. Yeah. It's uh, it's one of those stories that when I tell it, people always think I'm like missing some part out, out of it <laughs> that I'm like that I did something else because yeah. if I just tell it, it doesn't make sense. So I, uh, you know, I had a tweet going viral like I often do on Twitter and it was um, a list of five things. It was something like uh, five tips for single women to land a great guy. <laughs> it was like number one, uh, be sweet. Number two, grow your hair long. Number three, be in shape. Number four, don't be annoying. Number five, learn to cook or something like that. Perfect. Um, <laughs> perfect. Yeah. And, and uh, so this list was going viral, getting all sorts of responses, positive, negative, you know how Twitter works. And um, someone responded to it. I don't know who it was, but it was a verified account. Um, and they, they said something like, this is terrible advice. And I bet I sleep with more women than you do or something like that. And I literally just quote tweeted it and I just wrote, okay, dude. That was it. <laughs> a week later, I'm on a train back from London and I get an email from Twitter saying your account at Zuby Music has been locked. I click on, I'm like, wait, what is this? I thought maybe it's like a phishing scam or something. I click on the email um, and it's from the official Twitter thing. And it says, um, your account has been locked for a hateful conduct. Um, you know, you're not, you are not allowed to uh, abuse or harass people or threaten people based on their race gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, uh, religion, so on and so forth. And I'm like, I'm like, I've been, on, I've been on Twitter since 2009. Like I'm pretty, like, I'm pretty sure I don't do that. Like, I'm, I'm kind of against that stuff. Like, I don't do that. And then um, it's, it was like, this is the tweet which violated our hateful conduct policy. Literally it says, okay, dude. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, wait, what? Cause also keep in mind, like this is a week later. So I'm also, I don't, I myself don't remember even what the context of this is. Yeah. So I'm like, wait, what? Like, okay. what's going on here? And then I try to go on my Twitter app and, and I'm locked. I don't know if you've ever had an account locked. Like you're, it just comes up with a screen saying your account is locked. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, wait, what? Like, what is going on here? And then I found the, and then I was like, so I myself, I'm like, well, no, like this has to be an error. Like what's going on here? Like you can't lock me up under hateful conduct for saying, okay, dude, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, so I appealed it. I thought, you know, maybe there was just a problem with the algorithm or something. I appeal it. I get a response back at 24 hours later saying, uh, we've manually uh, reviewed your account and we've confirmed that this tweet does in fact violate our hateful conduct policy. So if you want to be let back into Twitter, you need to delete this tweet and we'll reinstate your account in 48 hours or something like that. And I'm like, wait, what? And of course, I mean, I'm also on Facebook and Instagram. So I've shared this with my audience. Yeah. Guys, yo, what the heck? I'm locked out of Twitter for saying, okay, dude. And um, everyone's like, wait, what? This is crazy. You know, Joe Rogan was talking about it. Like, wait, what's going on? I think hashtag, okay, dude, started trending on Twitter. Hashtag free Zuby was trending on Twitter because people were just like, wait, like this what is insane. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, so I, I had no choice but to delete the tweet. Yeah, of so course. I deleted it, which I didn't even like doing because it's like I'm, I'm admitting some kind of guilt yeah. that I've done yeah. something wrong. Uh, but, you know, I had 200,000 plus followers at the time. Like, I do want to get back on. Yeah. And then um, I I decided to, <laughs> where, the where uh, you turn the lemons into lemonade. So I went and I went to a t-shirt printing company and I got a t-shirt, a black t-shirt with just text on it saying, okay, dude, 
and I got them to print one t-shirt for me. And then I finally got back my Twitter account, I think on a Saturday, and I just posted a video of me dancing with this shirt on. Right? <laughs> and like the video went viral, the video got like 600,000 views and people were like, yeah, Zuby's back on Twitter or whatever. And like, okay, dude, like at this point, okay, dude, like becomes, it become like a catchphrase almost. Cause everyone's like, wait, like, okay, dude. Okay. Everyone's, you know, sort of saying it. So I have that. And then I start getting tons of people like, yo, I want that t-shirt. I want that t-shirt. So I like, I don't know. I sold like 300 t-shirts that weekend That's so awesome. <laughs> that weekend or something. I like did all that. And then I ended up making a song on my new album called okay, dude. Uh, we released a music video for it. So I managed to sort of turn a bad situation and an unfair situation into something that ended up being funny and lucrative and a branding opportunity essentially. Yeah. So okay, dude, to this day is it's, it's kind of like a thing people say on Twitter and, attribute to me that's a great it's, it seems to be a recurring theme actually that your adaptivity in these social media whether it's the tweet going viral about the deadlifting or in this case censorship frankly but you're constantly able to judo it into something i mean to the best of your ability to something positive it sounds like you've been very successful at that maybe we'll just jump back in i just wanted to read some lyrics from one of your songs that I really liked songs called okay. perseverance and the lyrics, which this particular part I really liked, um, says I'm an Eagle to a rat verbal demon on a track. I'm a scholar and a brawler. You don't feel it. Then you're whack. You're always talking evil in your rap. I'm trying to put my meanings on the map. I gave you 12 rules for life and kept my room clean. I'm the Jordan Peterson of rap. <laughs> <laughs> it's always funny hearing my lyrics like rap. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a big Jordan Peterson fan, so I really yeah. appreciated that little, yeah. little segment there. <laughs> um, and I wanted to just ask you, so we've talked a lot about government and its intervention in the world. And I want to get, uh, I guess, a little more cosmic on this, if you'll permit me. Please do. Is this what we're seeing in the world, the, the deepest roots of it? Is there a battle between good and evil occurring in the world? And where does one get their bearings or moral compass in this struggle, if, if that's the way you see it, that it's, that it's something between good and evil. Yeah, man, it's a, that's a big question. And I absolutely believe that. Um, I am a Christian and it's something that I believe is, you know, I believe in multiple planes of, what would you say it? I don't think reality is the right word, but I think that there is more to the world than, our simple empirical physical mm -hmm. world what we can touch here smell and taste i do think that there is a different realm or layer you mm -hmm. can call it supernatural you can call it by you know people understand this in different ways but that's something that i've i've always believed and actually i believe more so now um in the light of various things and i think the story of humanity is that story um there's something i tweeted a while ago 
which went viral, where I said, um, we keep looking for spiritual, we keep looking for political solutions to spiritual realm problems and being surprised mm. when it doesn't work, hmm. which I think is very true. So I think a lot of the issues that we have and the problems we discuss, et cetera, to me anyway, you know, some people will have a different view. I think at the root of it is something that is, you know, it's, it's not something that you can create a policy right. that's going to fix it because you're talking about a paucity of spirit of morality mm. of um of of goodness right evil is a thing and mm. evil's not the world's not simply separated into good guys and bad guys right that's like a very naive view mm. anyone who's done some deep thinking and done some you know i guess what you could call shadow work and even read through history you understand that you are capable of both good and evil and we don't really like to think of this and confront confront this, right? Nobody wants to imagine themselves being a bad guy. But if, if we think of ourselves, I'm sure, you know, in, in your life, you can think of times where that dark side of you has, has come out, right? Where you've done or you've said something that is, you know, cruel or is, you know, very, you know, very unkind or, you know, even evil or very malicious, whatever. And it's not your, your usual pattern, but it, it's there, right? It's, it's, it's in you. Yeah. Right. You can see in different people under certain circumstances, the savage kind of comes out. Right. You see right. this online. You see this online even. Yeah. Right. When people are anonymous, especially, and there's no repercussions to it, they, they will say some horrible, horrible stuff. Right. right. People will put out some really nasty stuff out there. And you're like, oh, wow. Like that's, that's really dark. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of evil in the world, but most people don't have the capacity to act on evil to any significant degree, but there are a lot of, I'm going to say something really dark here. There are a lot of potential Hitlers and Mao's and Stalin's and mm -hmm. Saddam Hussein's, et cetera, in our societies. Mm -hmm. But the people do not have the power to do that. They don't have the unchecked power. Like if you gave, right, right Hitler wasn't a one-off. If you gave a lot of people that kind of power, they would have also been dictatorial tyrants who would have mm -hmm. killed people and done all of this awful stuff, but they just don't have that power. To me, what makes somebody actually like truly good and virtuous is having the power and the capacity and the capability to do evil, but choosing to, to do good. Yeah. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Like choosing to do good. You recognize actually I could be a real bag and this can manifest in the smallest ways, right? Mm -hmm. Cause you can, you can really see people's personality when you give them even just a little bit of power. Just a little bit, right? You see mm -hmm. this in school, right? Mm -hmm. Give someone, give this child some power over the other children. Mm -hmm. See how they, see what happens, right? Do they become tyrannical, right? Some of them will, mm -hmm. or do they treat people kindly and benevolently, mm -hmm. et cetera, right? And we see this all the time. Look at politicians, right? Give them a, <laughs> right? Give them a little bit of power over people and see, okay, are you going to, are you going to use that as a force for good? Or are no. you going to wield that weapon with evil, et cetera? So, Coming back to the original point, I think that, you know, I think that there are, someone can take this either literally or metaphorically, you know, I think that there are demons at work in the world mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. They have been all throughout history. There are forces of good and of evil. There are some things which are kind of gray areas and it might not be that easy to tell which is which all of the time. Yeah. But there are various elements um, that we can see and some that we can't see that are working to undermine goodness, 
You know, that yeah. I, I do, I do genuinely believe that. I don't think that, and when it comes to politics, for example, uh, like that quote I, I said earlier, there are certain things where it's like, man, the issue is really, it's, it's rooted really deep and mm. people don't even really want to go there in conversations. So we end up trying to put band-aids on bullet wounds, right? Mm. So take something like, uh, okay, in the USA, what's a hot topic? Mass shootings, school shootings. Mm. Okay. If a school shooting happens, what's the conversation? The conversation is always about guns. It's like, what, mm. you know, we need to get rid of the AR 15. We need to limit magazines to this capacity. We need to do this. We need to ban bump stocks. We need to do, all right. In the, in the UK, you know, there's a knife crime problem, right? And people are talking about, oh, you know, we need to make it harder to get these knives or we need to, limit the length of a blade to this length or we need to, right? I'm like, what is driving a young man to go out with a knife or a gun and kill people? Mm -hmm. Like we all have lethal weapons at our disposal. We all have knives. Mm -hmm. If you live in a house, you own multiple knives, mm -hmm. right? We have cars. Lots of people in the USA have guns, right? We have all sorts of weapons. If you wanted to go out and hurt somebody, or kill somebody, you can, you literally have the capacity to do so. And you have weapons mm -hmm. to make it easier, but we don't do that. Mm -hmm. Right? So the question is what's going on in society that is producing people who are doing that, especially if it's producing a lot of them, like there's something going on here. And the yeah. USA is, the USA has had guns for a long time. Like this school shooting thing didn't start until Columbine really. Mm. Right? So and there's way too many guns in the USA to be as simple as, oh, it's just the guns. It's like, and there's 400 million guns. Right? They're not all jumping. They're not running around shooting. So what's going on in the USA, UK, everybody owns a knife, yeah. right? Um, but people aren't just running around stabbing each other. So what's going on like fundamentally on a, on a deep level, yeah. on a societal level, on a spiritual level, on a purpose and meaning level, et cetera, what's driving people to that behavior, like what, what's, what's causing that? To me, that's like a really interesting question. When you're looking at, there's a great phrase you used earlier in this podcast. You said, um, you, you said something like societal lies, or you said something about like the lies or the deception that's kind of going on here. People kind of being led to believe things which are just like objectively not true. I can't remember what phrase uh, it yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly. Yeah, what I said either, yeah but... you, used, you used a really interesting term for it. But yeah, like th there's a bit of a war on, re there's a war on reality that's going on, mm, yeah. right? Like yeah. a big pro a, a reason for a lot of the polarization and division is because people will not even agree on objective facts anymore. Not, mm -hmm. not just, okay, what's the opinion on the facts, but the actual facts themselves, it seems like you've got people who are operating off totally different realms of facts, right? There are people who think that COVID has a mortality rate of 40%. And if you don't, if you go outside and you don't have a mask on, you are, you're going to kill someone, Robert. Like there's yeah, people who, yeah. That, that's, yeah, like that's their actual belief system, right? That's not reality. Like that's mm -hmm. not, but that's going on. And there's millions of people who are believing that, right? Yeah. People don't even know what a man and a woman are anymore. Right. Or they do, but they're afraid to say so. Right. Why is this whole thing of men competing in women's sports? Like, how, how is that a thing? If you went back to 2010 and you told people in 2021, you're going to have biological males competing against biological females in pro sports in the Olympics, they'd be like, shut up, dude. 
right? <laughs> like, absolutely. No, no, absolutely yeah. not, right? Yeah. People are going to be having debates on whether men can menstruate and get pregnant or if females yeah. have penises, right? Yeah. Like that, there's going to be a real conversation. And it's going to be yeah. like a big con. People would just be like, what are you talking about? It's not South Park, man. Like, yeah. And so there's this war on actual reality going on. And then it's coupled with the censorship and yes. the platforming, yes. and the, you know, and the cancel culture and this and that. And you're seeing people moving away from, you know, I don't know, some of the, the sort of the anchoring people have become unmoored. I think, mm -hmm. I think the modern mm -hmm. Western world has become unmoored in, in various ways. Um, and so I think even with someone like Jordan Peterson, I think, I think if Jordan Peterson sort of came out in like 2005, even, I don't think he would have been this uh, phenomenon. Right. Right. I think people would just be like, yeah, he's, you know, he's cool, but he's kind of saying common sense. But it's like, we've reached a stage where you can become a celebrity by saying common sense. I think a lot yeah. of what I say is common sense, right? Yeah. Um, but people hunger for that. People hunger for purpose and meaning and direction. And the usual sources where people would get it from are being denigrated or people are disillusioned with them or yeah. whatever it is, you know, regardless of somebody's religious views, like I said, you know, I'm, I, I, I believe in God, I'm a religious person, you know, it's kind of how I was raised and what I've come to certain conclusions I've come to myself. Um, but regardless of someone's views on that, you can't deny that religion is an anchor for billions of people mm -hmm. in the world. So the yes. purpose, those questions around purpose and meaning and good and evil and right and wrong and how you should live and conduct your life generally, they're answered there. Right. Yes. Whether you believe in Judaism or Christianity, Islam, right. Hinduism, but like it's, it's there, right. It's an answer, right. You've got yes. something that's existed for thousands of years and many of our ancestors, they kind of went along with this and it got us where we are. And a lot of yeah. the concepts that we use even in secular society are actually rooted back to some of those Christian values, right. Yes. In, the US, in the UK and the USA, et cetera, most of the Western world, it's very much rooted in Christian values, which is why whether someone is a Christian or an atheist, actually, in most cases, they're going to agree on a lot of very fundamental stuff because you've both kind of come out of that right. same, you, they've, they've come from the same root. Yeah. Whereas then if they were to meet someone from, I don't know, some part of the Middle East, for example, or certain parts of Africa, it's, like, they may not have that same kind of fundamental concepts yes. on certain right. things. So, and I think, you know, if you, if you get rid of an anchor and you become unmoored, then you can survive off of the fumes of that thing for a little while. But at some point you venture into a whole new, you know, the, the boat moves too far away yeah. from the Harbor. And then you find yourself in a position where everyone suddenly like in the past five years, you hear a, a phrase I see a lot is the world is going mad. Yeah, I see that phrase all the yes. time, right? People yeah. saying it, people yeah. are, the world is going mad. And it's like, yeah, because the boat's gone too far out. It's gone so far that reality is now up for debate. Right. Right. Um, good is being called bad. Bad is being called good. Yes. Freedom, you know, it's like, it's Orwellian, right? Yeah. Slavery is being called freedom. Freedom, freedom is yeah. being called, freedom is being called danger or killing grandma, right? Yeah. Like everything's kind of become weird. A man is a woman. A woman is a man. Yeah. It's okay to sexualize children now. Right. Yeah. Let's have drag queen story hour. So like all of this weird stuff, it's just like, okay, I think that's what's to, in, in my view, right? This is my personal yes. view. I think 
that's what's that's just what's been happening. And I think also human beings, we don't live in a what do they say, nature abhors a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Right. So people are gonna find meaning and purpose and some type of value system and community, et cetera. And even um, what would I say? Even you know, elements of symbolism or uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Something sacred, maybe. Yeah, something sacred and something. Um, ah, I've lost the word right now. Uh, ritual, ritualistic, mm. right? Something I find mm-hmm. really interesting with some of these sort of secular ideologies. Whether you're talking about the whole COVID cult, or you're talking about some extreme forms of feminism or like mm-hmm. extinction rebellion and environmentalism yeah. and even parts of the vegan movement, et cetera, is, you know, or the whole woke ideology, yeah. thing, right? They, they, they become secular religions in a sense, mm-hmm. right? Now is the preaching is, you know, if you're white, you have the original sin of white guilt and white privilege, <laughs> and you're right. a part of a white supremacist system. And if you're not, it's not good enough to not be racist, Robert, you need to be actively anti-racist or you're perpetuating systems of whiteness and violence. Right. And, uh, you know, you're oppressing the POC. Like, like it's got its own like doctrine, right? Yes. Its own doctrine, its own original sin. It's got its own language, yeah. right? Like, so yes. there's own language. It's got like certain almost like rituals and there's like a community around it and this and that. And, you know, it's got a very clear, like sort of moral lines. And I'm like, what's happening is human beings are naturally religious. <laughs> Vast majority yeah. of human beings are yes. naturally religious. And that, that hole will be filled with something. If you, again, right. looking back at the 20th century, why did all of those regimes violently oppose religion? Right. It's, competi- it's competition. Yes. Right. It's very hard to instill um, communist doctrine or Nazi doctrine or whatever into someone if they already are have a have a have a strong faith yes. in something. Right. You can't just bring in the government and install it as God because people will reject it. But right. actually, if you can suppress that or kick it out of people, then they're still seeking that meaning and purpose. And you know, if you call God whatever is the highest power. The highest value, yeah. Yeah, the highest yeah. power and the higher value. Yeah. Like, it's going to be something. It could be yourself. Right. It could be the, the state, right? Yes. Um, yeah. Or, you know, some dictatorial leader. So yeah. people are going to latch on to something, right? Yeah. People are going to latch on to something. I mean, I think there are people who have literally made the virus of COVID itself essentially their God over the past year and a half because right. it's the most important thing in their life. They're base, they base their life around it, their actions, even their morality. What separates a good guy versus a bad guy? It's whether you wear a mask and get the vax or right. you don't. And if you don't, like you are the, you're a freaking demon, man. Like yeah. we want you kicked out of society, right? Um, you know, clean and unclean, right? It's literally, yeah. it's, it's, it's literally, it's like going back to some sort of archaic thing. So to me, I'm very much thinking out loud here, um, yeah. sort of like coming up with these concepts as I think of them. But it's really interesting to me how, because um, I very much believe that human beings have not changed much over the last several thousand years, mm. right? We haven't. I mean, when we think to, I don't know, if someone says the 1500s, in your brain, that sounds like, that sounds like a really long time ago. Mm-hmm. The 1500s, is only what, seven or eight people ago? Yeah. Right? You're only yeah. seven ancestors removed 
from right. the 1500s, seven or eight people, right? Like yeah. seven or eight life. Like that's not, it's not a long time. Like yeah. even if you go back to like the year 800, right. 200 B, like you're not that for when you think 500 years, that's a, sounds like a really, really long time. But if you think of that as being like seven people, right. Like, oh, okay. You know, let alone the 1900s. I mean, you're talking two people, one person, yes. two people. Yeah. So we haven't changed. Like fundamentally we're the same people with the same cognitive flaws, with the same desires, with the yeah. same emotions, the same fears, the same concerns. Like we're the same. We just have more stuff and we have better stuff. So um, I, I think there's that. I think C.S. Lewis had the term chronological snobbery, which is this mm. notion. It's a, I love that term, right? It's It's the notion that people of any given time assume that they are so much better and more enlightened uh, yeah, 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 and yeah. more moral than everyone right why are we right why, why are we tearing down statues yeah. and canceling people who are already dead because they don't live up to our moral values now but 100 yeah. years from now they're going to be wanting to cancel people now because we're probably doing some things or society's doing some things that 100 or 200 years from now they'll be like oh my gosh i can't believe that I can't yeah. believe that they did that or they allowed that, you know? So like you said before, you know, there's a level of humility in all of this stuff. Even with everything I'm saying, these are ideas, right? right? These are my ideas and I'm humble enough to accept that I could be wrong on some of them. I'm probably yeah. right on some of them. I don't have all the answers myself. You know, I'm just one person in this world, but that's why these conversations are so important so that we can at least think about this stuff. Absolutely. So much interesting stuff there. The chronological <laughs> snobbery is a form of arrogance, right? It's like we're trying, we're saying that us living today are somehow exceptional to everyone that came before us. And I think there is that, again, back to the earlier, we said history is a live event. Like it, it takes some level of self-awareness to realize that you're actively participating in this process you're subject to the same potential pitfalls and errors that other people have made before you. So that mm. like Solzhenitsyn said about the line between good and evil running down the heart of every man, like that, that evil that we've seen perpetrated in the past, it lives within all of us mm -hmm. and it can be called forth, you know, situationally and, and whatnot. So I think just to acknowledge that even is a great, bulwark against it because if you just flat out oh that's not me i would never do that it's like you have a gaping blind spot right you're you're just ignorant of your own humanity in many ways there's yeah, this old the, no, sorry, um, go ahead, go ahead. there's this quote that you, you called to mind too i don't know if i'm going to say it correctly but they say we have um we have a paleolithic biology, we have stone age institutions, and we have godlike technology, something <laughs> like that. So like, we're okay. just, you know, our biology is not moving as fast as our institutions, our institutions aren't moving as fast as our tech. And so we're just unmoored, I guess, as a result of this. Um, and that term you use, unmoored, I, it's really interesting to me because if you, in my study of Austrian economics, I think the monetary standard and the moral standard are very closely connected. Mm. Um, or you could say that culture in many ways is influenced by the character of money. And we've what, that's what we did in, in 1971 is we unmoored the monetary system from gold, right? Gold mm. was this anchor that kept 
individual market actors and institutional and even governmental market actors kept them honest, frankly, because if you're running a deficit or you're making bad decisions, then gold would leave your country or would leave your business, would leave your balance sheet. So there was this accountability that gold imposed that we just internationally revoked basically in 1971. You know, the, mm -hmm. the U.S. had declared itself effectively the central bank of the world where dollars are redeemable for gold, all currencies are redeemable for the dollar. Well, when U.S. broke the peg to gold, we completely unmoored all everything. The whole monetary system is just total, total compulsion now. Let's just say that. Yes. Like you all, you accept and use the dollar at the tip of a gun, essentially. It's like use this dollar as legal tender, pay your taxes, or go to jail. Yes. Um, and so my instinct tells me that this cultural storm we're embroiled in is somehow related to the unmooring of the money, right? We removed this anchor point to reality that kept us honest, mm. but I'm still struggling to identify the precise causal mechanism. Like what is it to describe someone in almost like a physics language? How does money and, and its character and its implementation influence cultural dynamics. And I, I don't expect to have the answer to that today, but I just wanted to. It's, it's an interesting question. I, I, I have an idea. Okay, please. I have an idea as you've been explaining that, which was a really interesting thought, which is, um, you know, there's the term, and it goes back to it's biblical, right? The truth will set you free. Mm. Mm -hmm. Right? So... The financial system is based on not just coercion, but deception. Mm -hmm. And you can't tell just one lie. <laughs> right. Like once you start lying and relying on deception, you need more deception and coercion yes. to keep it going. It doesn't right. matter what you're doing, whether you're a criminal or you're a government official who's uh, bending the truth or you're a media company, whatever it is, once you start going with deception, then there's always negative externalities because to yes. keep it going, the jig has to keep on going. Yes. Right. Because you have to the cover up the original keep... lie with another lie and so on. Exactly. And, and you get yeah. to a point where the truth is even hard to find. If you keep a lie going for a very long time and a lot of people come to believe it and view it as the truth, then those who speak the truth are viewed as outsiders and even heretics and, mm. and they, they get attacked because you're the one saying, oh no, it's this. But what people perceive as the truth in many cases is whatever the majority of people believe. That's mm. not what the definition of a truth is, but it's kind of how it is. And if you look at something like money, I mean, our entire life, certainly, we've been running on this system of fiat, and mm -hmm. debts and inflation, like even just trying to understand the money system. Well, no wonder people don't understand it, right? right. It's it's really weird and complicated and it's By different design. in different countries. Yeah. And, yeah, exactly. But I think that to answer your original question, to me, I think the answer lies in that deception because mm -hmm. anytime there is deception, it, it just lead, it leads to bad stuff. Yeah. And it leads to more deception and more coercion and the truth. Um, the, the, yeah, the, the truth sets people free. The truth is. So then distance from the, the truth, truth yeah. 
is the opposite that's the unmooring. Yeah, that's yeah, the unmooring, so, right? So if we've so if the truth sets you free, then the, the further we move away from truth, the more towards imprisonment or slavery or something we become effectively. Yeah. And actually I think it's a funny analogy because I think, I mean, if you imagine a boat unmooring, it looks like it's going towards freedom. Mm-hmm. But it's actually so it feels free. <laughs> yeah. It feels free. But there's like that that in itself is 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 a is a deception in itself. Yeah. That's interesting too, because I've 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 always had freedom as kind of my highest value, but I think in my younger years, there's you can very easily misinterpret freedom where it's like I just do whatever I want, yes. which is kind of what my original version of freedom was. Mm. But I've come to view it more as submission to truth. Yeah. Which is like whatever is true like the most accurate portrayal of reality that you can uncover which is not like it's not a singular discovery process you don't just like peel back the layers like oh i found truth i'm done the <laughs> truth because reality is constantly changing you have to constantly work to mm-hmm. redraw your map to reality right reality is constantly shifting and you're just trying to get your map as close as possible so truth is like a discovery process mm. and i, I found that to actually get to freedom that you have to submit to that, which is a paradox in itself. It's like freedom and submission doesn't even make any sense. Yeah. Yeah, But, but that's, that's kind of what it, what it is. And I think the concept of, there are a lot of words in the English language, which we, we use a lot and people interpret really, really differently from, you know, Mm -hmm. freedom, liberty, equality, Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of words which, you know, diversity even, right? You know, inclusion. Mm-hmm. Like we, we use a lot of these words and people understand them very, very differently. Yes. And, and that's the source of arguments. It is. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, like the concept of freedom is, is really interesting because mm-hmm. someone could have a very libertine view on mm-hmm. freedom, which literally just means that I can and perhaps should do whatever I want, anything that gives me pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, I should just chase every every high available to a human yep. being, like whatever it is, you know, um, and however it's induced. Um, but I think that's a, I, I, you know, I can I can I can understand how some people would understand the word freedom to mean that. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a, a rather juvenile and certainly a, certainly not a. It's certainly not an optimal way to live one's life. Right. either for the individual or for society yeah. as a whole. So I think that freedom is a really interesting concept because it has to be tempered with, I think Jordan Peterson's great when he talks about this, because he says, you know, in the West, we always talk about rights, but we rarely talk about responsibilities. Right. Right. So it's like Besides with every right, yeah. exactly. With every right come responsibilities, right? Yes. You have a right to do this, but firstly, just because you have a right to do something doesn't mean you should or it's a good idea. Yes. But it also means that even if you have that right, you should be responsible with it, right? Yes. You have a right to freedom of speech. Right. Right? So, you know, legally you could say some awful stuff, but morally mm-hmm. and socially you you shouldn't, right? You should use your words to speak truth and not to lie. And not to call people horrible things and, you know, not to do bad stuff, right? You have a right to 
bear arms, right? You have a right to own a gun. That doesn't mean you have a right to shoot people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't mean you have the right to go murder people or do whatever, right? You have a right to this. Yeah, people, people we have, we have a, a lot of rights, um, but with them come responsibilities. And yeah, I think that latter half of the conversation, uh, I think we need to talk more about responsibility just in society in general, because yes. I think the, perhaps the, the, the freedom and rights talk has overtaken it to such a strong degree for such a long period of time that people feel like they don't have any responsibilities. And again, I think part of Jordan Peterson's success is his message is largely, um, you know, what does he say? Pick a load and carry it. Mm-hmm. Right? You do, you do have responsibilities. So like pick something difficult and carry it. You know, you said you, you've become a father in the most recent years and in some ways, and you see this conversation, right? Some, some guys and, you know, even women say, oh, you know, I don't want, you know, I don't want kids. Cause that's a, it restricts my freedom. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't, you're not free if you have kids, right. You can't just go and do whatever you want and go wherever you want. It's like, no, you have a responsibility. But so again, so in one sense, yeah. Okay. I get that. But let's like, let's, let's balance this equation out here. Right. Mm -hmm. Like there's, there's a lot of value and importance on all these different levels Mm -hmm. of fatherhood and and parenthood. And, you know, actually bringing life into the world in itself is is very magical. Yes. As far as I'm concerned, you know, it's a a gift from God, literally. And, you know, and then raising another human being, like what, what is a higher, virtue and responsibility than bringing a new human being into the world and raising them to be a good, decent person who then adds to the world. Like that's, that's the greatest capital we have, right? I don't want to refer to human beings as capital, but that's, that, that's, you know, I, the term human resources has been so bad, (laughs) like literally human beings, like we are our greatest resource. And it's, um, Amazing too, and I did not know this at all until I became a father, but amazing how much freedom having a child will unlock within you. Mm. Um, There are certain aspects of, I I guess you just say, in general, I was much more self-conscious before having a child. Like a lot of people talk about how much it transforms you to go from Mm. non-parent to parent. But to have actually created life beyond yourself and to live through the eyes of another in a way that you can never even imagine. It's not even, it's ineffable. You can't even describe it. You know, Um, it unlocks all this freedom in you because all of a sudden all you care about is enriching this person's existence. And, you know, for me, I have a little daughter. I'm just like looking into her eyes. She's asking me these deep questions. And I'm like, I just want (laughs) to, everything I can do to help her, find the answer to that right and, and enjoy the experience is like it it's all i want so it mm. it it disinhibits you from your own ego in a lot of ways where you're self-consciously before i would be more self-consciously aware of what i said or how i said it or how i may appear mm. and all of a sudden you get lost in this little person you're just like here's all of me you know so it's yeah. very there's a lot of paradox there it's powerful man it's powerful you know i think also you know, I mean, what good is freedom without direction, mm-hmm. right? You know, yeah. you, you, you get in a car lost. and just, you know, just get in a car and just start driving, yeah. just driving around aimlessly, right? It's like, yeah. no, you, you want to be aiming towards something. And I think, yeah. again, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a parent yet, but 
that's it. I mean, what, what's a more obvious direction of, okay, what, what do I need to do? Like, okay, well, yeah. I need to keep this little person alive. <laughs> yeah. So therefore I need to, you know, I can't just go off and disappear into like whatever. Like, so <laughs> I, I think, you know, things that give people that direction are important. Otherwise, yeah, you're free, but you're directionless. What are you going to do? Oh, right. free. Oh, I just going to play, I'm going to play video games for 12, 12 hours a day and eat junk food. Yeah. And whatever. It's like, yeah, you're free and and you have a right to do that. But we all know that's not a meaningful life. That's not a it's yeah. not even a happy life. It's not and it, it might it, might seem fun for a couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, people can be destroyed by that abundance where if you just have mm. a lot of freedom or a lot of wealth, but you don't have any purpose. Like I saw when I living in LA, you saw a lot of this. These guys that are caught up in Peter Pan world, they just made a lot of money. Like you just go out every weekend and, you know, younger me, when I first encountered that, I thought it was appealing, but then after seeing it up close for a couple of years, I'm like, that's not the way you want to live. It's not good. Yeah. Well, to um, have that realization, I mean, that's, that's maturity, man. Yeah. That's maturity. Like you say, I like the, love the fact you use Peter Pan. I mean, that's what it's like. I call it permanent adolescence. Yes. Right. Where it's like, you know, someone's 30, 40, 50, but they're still just, they're stuck like in their 18 year old yeah. self. And you know, when you're 18, okay, someone's 18, but a time comes where it's like, okay, like, what am I, what am I doing with a lot of my life? Right. What value am I adding? Yes. What's my, what's my legacy going to be like, yeah. what, what's, you know, there, there's more to, yeah, I don't know. Maybe, perhaps freedom is the, is the, maybe a good way to look at it is almost like the freedom to create your own boundaries and purpose and meaning, etc., mm-hmm. rather than having it, I don't know, forced upon you by mm-hmm. a state mm-hmm. or something like that. Maybe that's mm-hmm. a good way to think of freedom. So yeah, you have the freedom, but if you want to live a meaningful life, you have to put in your own barriers and boundaries and you know, find your, you find that direction and that purpose and you have the freedom to do that. But if you don't do it, you're not going to live a fulfilling life. Um, But also you don't want it to be, it shouldn't be compelled on you. It shouldn't just be like, you know, you are forced to, you know, this is your job. You're going to have this and you're going to do that. And you're going to do that. Like maybe that's a way to balance it out. Yeah. There's, and this is where I guess religion comes into play is it, okay, so you have the freedom to go any direction you like. You can go, the thing I like to say is there's each, within each of us lives an angel and an animal, right? The, mm. the animal is the biological, the meat suit, the ego, the thing that's, which is often related to sin, by the way, right? Like gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, lust, yeah. pride. These are all things that are kind of self-serving actions, and then there's the angel, right? Which is, that's what distinguishes us from animals is that we have this higher order reasoning. Um, we can communicate, you know, we use language in a way that no other animal does. Uh, we can reason about ourselves. We can self-reflect. So there's this, I, the higher meaning in life is found orienting yourself towards the angel, I think, right? Like you always have to keep the animal satisfied. It's, it's, and I've <laughs> struggled to get this down. I'm still yeah. struggling, but you want the angel to be in charge, but the animal like empowers the angel. It's almost like mm. if you imagine the angels 
riding the animal or something, it gets a lot of power from the animal. So if you just starve the animal and he has no fun and he has no play and he has no outlet, um, for me, it's, it's interesting. I, for years growing up, would always listen to heavy music, often rap at the gym. Mm. And then in this COVID thing, I was like, oh, I'm going to start getting more into podcasts because I never listened to them. So I started listening to podcasts at the gym, but I actually found that that was robbing my animal of his playtime. Because now I'm in the gym thinking, you know, and doing all this stuff where I needed yeah. <laughs> that time to decompress and just, you know, be the gorilla beating his chest kind of thing. Mm. So there's yeah. this there's this balance. And I guess with freedom, again, in my younger years, I thought, OK, freedom is going to be all about giving the animal whatever he wants. Mm -hmm. But you find out pretty quickly. And it's not like I'm compelling. I don't advocate compelling anyone to do this, but I mm -hmm. think. It's a natural human universal. You'll discover rather quickly that that's an unfulfilling existence. Just, yes. just providing for the animal. And that's yeah. when you discover the higher principles of the angel. And, and that's what religion points to, right? It's about living it, it does. beyond and, yourself. And, and, you know, again, I think we need to remember that, you know, humans have been having these conversations for millennia, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So we're, um, again, this sort of chronological snobbery is... And maybe this is why I'm, you know, someone who people consider a bit more, you know, conservative or traditionalist in some ways is because, you know, we're all trying to reinvent the wheel all the time. And it's like, hey, guys, you know, like people have been discussing this stuff for thousands and thousands and thousands mm -hmm. of years, which doesn't mean we need to blindly run with everything that they've come up with. Mm -hmm. Right. But maybe, you know, well, maybe they had a point, right? You, know, you go back and read this book that was written 2000 years ago yeah. and they're saying stuff which sounds very much like right now. Yeah. And, <laughs> and it like, stood the test of time. It stood the test of time. So I was like, maybe, maybe we shouldn't just jettison this. Maybe it's like, yes. okay, that makes sense. Or, you know, you read old philosophers or, you know, just any old books in general. You're like, yes. oh, okay. They, they, humans have always been asking these questions and trying to find know what is the meaning of life or what yeah. is this and you know people have hedonism has always been a thing mm -hmm. right people mm -hmm. have been all right i'm just gonna go that way or i'm gonna indulge in this or i'm gonna indulge in that and it doesn't work out well right, right. <laughs> it, it doesn't right. work out well on an individual level or certainly not on a societal level right it yes. leads to the whole downfall of entire cultures and perhaps even nations if yes. everyone just decides to go now, if we all just go full libertine and it's just like, oh, you know what? Like, just do what literally just do whatever makes you happy, makes you feel. Yes. Good. Like if that's everyone does that on mass millions, hundreds of millions of us, like we're not going to we're not going to last very, very long. Right. Um, and we're not going to feel very good either. Yeah. I mean, even something as simple as, um, you know, even something as simple as <laughs> let's let, let, let's make it a uh, let, let, let's let's take this up a notch to a, a, deep, a less deep realm. Um, you know, nutrition. Mm -hmm. Okay. You literally, you know, you can eat whatever you want. You literally have absolute freedom to eat whatever you want. You have access to more foods than your ancestors could imagine or pronounce or even recognize. You can go to any supermarket in any modern country and you can just buy whatever you want. You can eat as much as it as you want, drink as mm -hmm. much. Um, but what's the best way to do it? You have that right. You have that freedom. But if you just indulge, ultimately you will die, actually. Right? Yeah, like you, yeah, you'll actually yeah. kill yourself, right? Yeah. You'll either intoxicate yourself or you'll get so fat that your heart stops beating or whatever yes. it is. And you'll feel horrible and you'll get sick 
and people won't be attracted to you yeah. and everything. Right. So it's like, okay, let's go to that extreme. You can see that. Um, and then also, yeah, you know, there's another extreme, right? There's, you know, anorexia and eating disorders yeah. where it's like, oh, I'm not, I'm going to totally, I'm going to, I'm not going to, I'm going to be, I'm going to not, I'm going to so not indulge that yeah. I'm going to literally like starve myself or whatever. Right. So with nutrition, it's like, okay, well, there's an approach to it where you get an optimal result. You feel mm -hmm. good. You live longer. Mm -hmm. um, you look good. You train well. You're in good health, etc. Like you, you literally get feedback. You, yeah. Right. That's why yeah. I think I think training and nutrition is cool because you literally you get feedback. You put there's an input, right? Yeah. Exercise and nutrition, and then you literally see how see how you feel. Oh, yeah. I gained 10 pounds because I've been eating yeah. too much. Oh, I lost 10 pounds. I, oh, I feel good. I feel bad. I try, I can train well. I can't, I feel lethargic, whatever it is. So I think that's a, maybe a good, and now like a sort of simplified analogy for a lot of other things in mm -hmm. life, you know, like, what are we, what are you consuming? What are you doing? How are you managing mm -hmm. your freedoms? How are you disciplining those freedoms that you have? And what's the effect on you? Right. What's the effect on other people? What's the effect on other how other people view you? Because you know, the we always have a reality is a feedback system. Mm -hmm. You know, people can try to deny reality, but reality is a feedback system because right. you just see how you feel how you feel, but you also see how other people react and res respond. You know, yeah. right, rightly, rightly or wrongly. Um, yeah. If you. I don't know if you put on some super crazy outfit and you you some, do some wacky hairstyle and you go outside, people are looking at you weird, like, oh, what's up with this guy, right? Or, you know, you, you yeah. go out looking good and you know when you're looking good, right? Yeah. Um, so you're always getting that feedback system. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, that's interesting. Again, that's, I, so that's what the unmooring breaks the feedback, right? Because if you're not moored to reality, then you're just no, putting yes. whatever out there. You're not getting any actual feedback because there's mm. no, there's no inhibition. Yeah. And if other people are unmoored as well, then the feedback you're getting isn't accurate. It's not accurate. Right? No. If everyone is unmoored and actually you're the one who is moored, then you're the crazy person. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If everyone else is running around, right. Like in some weird delusion. I think it, I think it truth, was, then. was, um, H.G. Wells, I mean, it may have been someone else, but he said, the further a society drifts from the truth, the more it hates those who speak it kind of thing. So if you are moored and mm -hmm. everyone else is unmoored, you, you just become the, yeah. the outsider, I guess. Yeah. And again, I mean, what an amazing time to, <laughs> we're, we're living, we're living, as far as I'm concerned, we're living in the greatest delusion of yeah. my lifetime right now. All right. And this is not me saying that, uh, COVID doesn't exist, yeah. right? Or that there's there there hasn't been a virus going around, but the level of response and the type of response versus the actual threat and the way that that has happened is something else. I mean, yeah. we've literally seen like propaganda, right? Like yes. <laughs> actual propaganda on TV, yeah. on the radio, on social media, day in, day yeah. out, people are being propagandized and you're seeing the effect it has on people because mm -hmm. there's a percentage of people in our countries who previously seem totally reasonable, who in a very short space of time lost it, 
just just literally yeah. lost it and and might yeah. never get it back. There are people, there are millions of people right now who are fully vaccinated, walking around outside by themselves with masks on. It would be interesting to see if those were actually the more neurotic. You know, I don't I, I don't know imagine. that you could do that study necessarily to have all those people do the the Peterson test, but it would have it would have to be voluntary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's exactly. coerce the coerce them. <laughs> Round them off. <laughs> Yeah, it would, it would be interesting. It would, I want to be. I want to be um, respectful of your time. We're about thirty minutes over. I sorry, I got caught up in very yeah, interesting conversation here. Yeah, it's all. Good. Um, I, it. I do want to ask one last question, if you're willing to share some views on it. So, you know, clearly, I'm a big. I have one tattoo, by the way. It's a Bitcoin tattoo. So oh, yeah. I'm very. Um, I guess you could argue that Bitcoin is an ideology too. It's. Um, just an alternative economic system effectively that's mm-hmm. independent of the state. I hold very deep views that it's one of the, I mean, it really is the, to separate money and state is probably, I don't want to say it's the only, because the only is a very strong word, but it is the most important avenue for liberating human beings from coercion in general. Mm-hmm. Um, where are you on your Bitcoin journey? Do you have, you know, particular views on Bitcoin you're willing to share or talk about? Um, and if this is too big of a question at the end of the interview, that's fine too. But I just wanted oh, no, to throw it on there. No, no, I, I, uh, I answer anything, man. Um, so I am. How would I put it? I'm a, I'm a big Bitcoin fan, mm-hmm. and I very much believe in both the. Tech, I think both the technology and the sort of vision and philosophy behind it make a lot of sense to me and mm. are quite strongly linked to a lot of the things we've been talking about. Um, I'm not a, I'm not like a hardcore maximalist in the, like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to start a, a, I've seen like that can get really tribal and mm-hmm. weird and like, kind of cultish in its in its own way which again to me is that human psychology sort of playing up just in a different in a different avenue i'm not going to be here having like a you know so i think uh i also think that as much as i i really like bitcoin i don't think it's the you know there's the people who think bitcoin answers everything you know bitcoin fixes Mm. this Mm -hmm. no matter the issue bitcoin fixes this Mm. I'm not sold on that. I think Bitcoin fixes certain issues. I don't think it literally fixes everything in the world. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, again, you're kind of making a cryptocurrency into a deity. I don't think it's that far, but I think it's uh, something ex- extraordinarily important. In terms of the future, I think it's something that is going to be, how would I put it? I think what the internet has done for information for our generation mm-hmm. I think Bitcoin will do for money and finances what the internet did for information mm. for us, if that makes sense. Yeah, completely. Um, yeah, I think that's where it's going to go. I think, uh, you know, I have nine nieces and nephews. I think like when they are our age, I think Bitcoin will be something that they use without necessarily even knowing they're using it. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, we don't really know where we know we're using the internet, but we don't TCP really IP. Yeah. 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 You don't know all yeah. the ins and outs. You're not yeah. really thinking about it that deep. It's just a normal thing. Yeah. I think that Bitcoin and, you know, and I'm, I also don't think that 
Yeah, obviously tons of cryptocurrencies are trash like this. So I don't know, 10,000 10, of them, right? I don't think that um, part of why I'm, I'm not like a, you know, I wouldn't call myself a Bitcoin maximalist is because I'm not someone who thinks that there's only room for one cryptocurrency and it's Bitcoin and all of the others are completely scams or trash or have mm -hmm. no purpose whatsoever in any type of future. To me, that's, I tend to stay away from extremes. Like yeah. I, I think, right. you know, 80, the truth 20. can be more, the truth can be more to one side than it is to another, <laughs> but I, I don't like to on virtually anything. I, I don't want to just say, okay, like that position all the way there is the right one. And anything to the side, to the left of it or to the right of it is just absolutely wrong and has no value. I, I don't like to go that far with anything. Yeah. Um, so this is probably this is probably a bit of a, a, a long-winded answer there, but that's where I view that's where I view Bitcoin. I, I think the long-term, I think the value proposition of it and the technology behind it is incredibly interesting, yeah, and groundbreaking and totally new. I mean, just the simple concept of having a digital anything that's not limited mm -hmm. <laughs> is already pretty mind-blowing and. Mm -hmm. Obviously, to someone who's not familiar with Bitcoin, you have to explain that to them. Like, yeah, yeah, you can't just can't just copy and paste Bitcoin. Yeah, um, but in our digital realm, that's so unique. Actually, that's a so yeah, I that's think, literally a the breakthrough. A digital yeah. item you can't copy and paste. First one, exactly. Ever. Yeah, yeah, huge breakthrough in that sense. Yeah. And then I think the more you understand some of the problems with the current banking system and the downline, mm -hmm. social, cultural, and political and philosophical ramifications. Mm -hmm of all of that, then it becomes much bigger. And I, I think that's why so many people in Bitcoin like get into it to- uh, Yeah, no, it is, yes. View, yeah, be, viewing it beyond just being a currency, right? It becomes yeah. almost, uh, uh, I don't know the right term to use, but it, yeah, you said ideology, right? It becomes, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, they talk about the separation of money and state, which that's why I thought that you, I was interested to get your views on it because I thought given your position on government, hmm. Um, you know, Bitcoin is the greatest enemy of the state there has ever been, effectively. Yes. It's like you're, you're taking I, I, away that, their power. That's an interesting point as well, actually, because perhaps this is why I'm not as utopian as some Bitcoiners mm -hmm. are, is because I very much recognize that states don't like giving up power. <laughs> mm -hmm. So even if I would like this more much more libertarian utopia and want to push mm -hmm. towards it in various directions i think that it's not going to be again like i said before it'll be a fight freedom's always a fight Absolutely. it's not going to just be it's yeah. not going to just be as simple as okay like they're just governments just roll over and they're like oh you know what we're going to stop issuing dollars and pounds and euros like we're going to you know just let this be, <laughs> let everyone run away with their bitcoin yeah. uh, i don't i don't think it'll be that I don't think it'll be that simple. And then there's also deeper ramifications because yes, Bitcoin is um, great for, how would I put it? Redistributing wealth in an ethical way, in a way that does not rely on any type of coercion. Mm -hmm. But also, and I don't hear a lot of people talking about this, and I, and I, it's also not something I normally talk about because it's much more of like a, you know, I'm, I'm a more right-leaning guy and it's more of like a left-wing inverted commas concern. Mm -hmm. um, 
the level of, you know, realistically, let, okay, let's say if Bitcoin hit a million dollars, you're going to have like a whole new ultra wealthy elite billionaire slash potential trillionaire mm-hmm. class, right? And then you're going to have little people with their little scraps of Satoshis elsewhere, which, okay, you've now massively disrupted the old system, mm. but you've also ushered in another, uh, you know, a lot of the issues that already exist are still, they're still there. And yeah. as we've discussed before, human beings are not flawless angels. Mm-hmm. So are the people with that wealth and therefore power necessarily going to be benevolent with it? As McC- right. right? Um, why would they be, et cetera? So I don't really hear that spoken about much. Yeah, that's a legitimate, also, uh, legitimate concern. Yeah. Um, and and the, the faster Bitcoin succeeds, the more likely it is to import a lot of the existing wealth disparity with it could even make it mm-hmm. worse, actually. Yeah. If, yeah. if, if, if you may, if you could somehow flip a switch and make Bitcoin full global money now, mm-hmm. it would probably increase the divide between rich and poor. Oh, it's oh, not- oh, gee, it would, it would be insane. Yeah. Because <laughs> most people don't have any Bitcoin. <laughs> right. 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 Most people don't have any. So it would be insane. It would literally right. like be like Bitcoiners and now like literally anyone with any Bitcoin, like yeah. just having one Bitcoin, like bang, you're in the 1%. Yeah. And everyone else is there like in poverty. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think so. The, the numbers I heard on this were there's roughly 47 million millionaires in the world. Mm-hmm. So if you divided the total supply of Bitcoin, by 47 million millionaires, it's less than half a Bitcoin each, you know, 0.45 or whatever it is. So technically owning 45 million sats puts you into Bitcoin 1%. I don't know. I'm sorry, not the 1%, but you'd be a millionaire in purchasing power terms. Mm. The one, the big thing that it does solve for though, is that we are continually exacerbating the wealth gap by printing money, right? So the, the printing of money is mm-hmm. the stealing from the poor and the middle class and the reallocation to the wealthy. Yes. So a Bitcoin, a hierarchy of wealth premised on Bitcoin would at least break that mechanism. So even if there were these this new trillionaire, billionaire, millionaire class, mm-hmm. they wouldn't have a mechanism to... They'd be the richest people in the world, clearly, as we yes. as by definition, but they wouldn't be able to steal from lower classes via the Agreed. printing press, which yeah. is a huge net positive in, yeah. in Bitcoiners' view. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think that again, you know, that that's why I think, like I say, you know, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm bullish on Bitcoin. I'm fairly evangelical to it with certain people, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't have this notion that it's going to fix all of our problems. Uh, yeah. you know, I think it, I think it can fix certain things, but there is always new problems to be created. And then there's just, man, I always come back to it, man, but human beings are flawed, right? That, that's, I think yeah. that's probably one of the biggest takeaways of our, of, of the past couple hours, right? Human mm-hmm. beings are flawed and yeah. we individually need to, you know, do our best to look out for that in our, in ourselves and Mm. check it when it's coming from other people or from the government and they're starting to infringe on people or whatever it is. But 
it's just the old, it's the story of humanity, man. There's never been a utopia. There's always yeah. been problems. There's always been poverty, always been homelessness. People have always had problems. There's always been violence, um, you know, and it's just, it's unfortunate, but it's just how it is, man. You yeah. know, how, how do you get a zero crime society? You, you have to kill everybody. The only way you can actually have equality or get certain things down to zero is like literally get rid of all the humans. Yeah. Um, which we don't want to do. Right. So it's, uh, you know, we're always going to have our issues and the best we can do is the best we can do is the best we can do. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed completely. Well, I just hope we can get some laser eyes on your profile at some point. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually had him for a while, man. Oh, did you? <laughs> I had him for a while. Uh, right yeah. now, right now is not really feeling like laser eyes mode. But, uh, <laughs> Well, you know what? I, I think I, I think I had them when it broke. Like I think when it was between like fifty and sixty k, I uh, I had the laser eyes on, and then I was well. Like, actually, the, like, I wouldn't count it out yet. I think we're still oh, in no, the I don't, market, I don't. but we'll see what happens the rest of the year. Um, <laughs> but man, this has been an awesome conversation. I you know it's been a long time coming. I know we've been talking about this for months, so I appreciate having you know having you come on. Um, if you may want to leave uh, the audience with some parting words or tell them where they can find you. Yeah, sure. I won't do parting words because I think I've been verbose enough on this podcast. <laughs> but um, you can find me on all social media at Zuby Music. That's Z-U-B-Y Music. And you can check out my new album, Word of Zuby, my book, Strong Advice, and all of my other music and merchandise, as well as my podcast. If you go to ZubyMusic.com, you'll find all of the links there. Awesome. Thank you so much, Zuby. You're welcome, man.